This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This is Greg Olson, inviting you to check out my new Blue Wire podcast, TE1, where I interview tight ends throughout the history of the NFL who have helped revolutionize the position. TE1 is presented by the Chevy Silverado, The Silverado is all about grit. It's strong and dependable, exactly like playing tight end. Just like the incredible players we sit down with on the podcast, the Chevy Silverado is in a league of its own. Strong, advanced, and dependable. Download TE1 today wherever you listen to podcasts. What is Crackalackin' Hardware Knox listeners? I am Dan Favalli, your second favorite co-host of the Hardware Knox podcast. Have a great episode for you today. It is loaded. We are first going to talk with Bleach Report's Grant Hughes about the playoffs. Just some stray thoughts on the Celtics Heat Series to date. Um, we go really in-depth on Lakers Nuggets in advance of their Game 4, which hopefully you'll be listening to this beforehand. But if you're listening to it afterwards, we did discuss some evergreen content such as Anthony Davis and whether he's underrated because it seems like the discussion sort of shifted in that direction following his game winner in Game 2. We also talk about LeBron's comments uh, about his receiving only 16 first-place votes in the uh, final MVP tally. We also talked about the news out of the Clippers locker room, I guess you could call it, that Paul George gave this you know sort of attaboy speech after the Game 7 loss and let's run it back, let's come back and win and it was met with, per the Athletics Sham Sharania, a bunch of eye-rolling. And so we get into what's going on with the Clippers and their search for a playmaker. After that, I bring in Salman Ali. He is a fellow Blue Wire podcaster. He hosts the Red Nation Hoops podcast, and he also covers the Houston Rockets for ESPN 97.5 in Houston. We talk, you guessed it, Houston Rockets. Just get into their future, their long-term outlook, uh, trades that they could make, the season ending the way it did, their head coaching search. It's a fun discussion. It's a long pod. We're running almost two hours, but we cover a lot of content. As always, though, before we get started, I have to shout out our sponsors this week. We are excited to have Indeed and Bet Online back, as always. Without them, this podcast would not be possible. I will not keep you waiting any longer. Let's get into talking with first Bleacher Report's Grant Hughes and then ESPN 97.5's Salman Ali. Grant, welcome back for what I think we've got to be in the teens with your appearance for Hardwood Knox. So thank you for coming back on. How are you doing? I'm doing good. And and like I said, before we uh, before we started taping or taping, does anybody tape anything? Recording, whatever. Um, I'm stoked because in my day to day life, I just don't get the opportunity to talk about the NBA on a level uh, that we can discuss it on. Like my wife, for instance, uh, or just general acquaintances are not interested in like, what should Mason Plumley have done uh, instead of <laughs> running into LeBron on the last, on AD's game winner? Like, what are your thoughts? What are his three options? Like that kind of thing. So we don't need to talk about that specifically, but always glad to do it. Always glad to be here. 
uh, let's let's try to get to the 20s someday. Yeah, right. We're going to get there, rest assured, because I'll be pestering you enough. But, you know, you know, you mentioned the playoffs. Let's start with some stray playoff thoughts um, before we get into some news topics. I'll let you, which series do you want to tackle? Nuggets, Nuggets, Lakers, or, or Heat, Celtics? Uh, what have you been, what, excuse me, what have your impressions been for either of them so far? Well, so, and this was kind of surprising to me as it was developing, um, but I've been, I don't know about you, but I've been so much more interested in the East side of the bracket than the West, which like that's, I don't know when, if ever, that has really been the case, uh, at least in the last, what you know, 10, 10 years or so. Um, but like the Toronto-Boston series was just for me, um, like as good as things got, I love, or I thought. And then, and then, and then Boston-Miami, um, I just have, so I'll, I had this thought the other day. So there's a, a San Francisco Giants broadcaster who's done their games forever, um, Mike Kruko. And like when there'll be a play that for example uh uh the the pitcher throws like just a dart like low and away the batter gets the bat on it rips it up the line the third base or well i guess first baseman whoever makes an incredible play like diving makes an incredible throw and gets him out by like half a step and he'll say that's the big leagues right there and it's just like his way of saying like that's about as good as this sport can look just top to bottom Mm -hmm. Um, and I've had that thought several times in Boston, Miami, which feels weird because it's a defensive series. Um, but just watching the talent, watching the strategy, watching the adjustments and the counter adjustments, um, the, com- the, the level of competitiveness, um, it's just like it's the big leagues. And, and I think that has been the most enjoyable part of all this for me because the playoffs are always more intense and just mm-hmm. better played. But but this series, this this Boston Miami series, to me, um, I've just found myself just kind of reveling in like the level that the basketball is being played at, and and I think it's only going to continue because you know the the stakes just get higher with every game, and and these two teams are just so good. Yeah, this is a series that I don't. I feel like I've said this a lot more during the postseason than I normally do. I don't have like a great feel for it, and it was mm-hmm. I think part of it is because I didn't expect the Heat to be here. And the other thing was you you watch the first two games and you're like, oh, Miami's like going into zone so often kind of broke Boston's offense. And then all of a sudden, like Boston is, you know, not just their offense didn't just perform well in game three, but like they really put pressure on the basket. They got to the free throw line and now it's like, OK, well, now what is Miami going to do? And so it, it looked like I wouldn't say that the Heat were going to run away with it, but you had like one impression, but then. Boston comes back and then they're even like a lineup that they just barely trotted out in the uh, regular season. Uh, Gordon Hayward's back and then they run out the, the smalls like that all small lineup where it was just, you know, f- I'll call it five wings and Kemba Walker basically. So I'm very interested to see what uh, people might be listening to this before game four, after game four, whatever. But the rest of this series, this just feels like something that's the extent of my feel for it. I feel like we're in for seven games because I don't know that, either of these two teams is going to punch far enough above the other team's weight for a long enough time to, to delay it that long. And um, it's like you said, it, it's been a de- defensive series, but I'm also part of me is wondering like, you know, did Boston almost kind of crack the code in game three? And like, they missed a lot of, they didn't take a lot of three pointers in game three. I actually think 26 attempts was their fewest of the postseason, but they also didn't shoot too well on them either. It was sub 35%. And you're like, you know, Jason Tatum's not going to go two of seven from downtown forever. And uh, they're going to be nice where just Mar- Marcus Smart gets scorching. And so I'm wondering if their offense actually has like another gear against this Miami team too. 
Yeah, no, I, I've had this thought about Boston several times, um, specifically that really, I guess, just going back to the Toronto series, because the, you know, the first round was kind of whatever. Um, but it, it felt I, I have thought several times, like, man, Boston, if they could just knock down some of these open threes, they'd be up 14 instead of six or whatever it is. And honestly, you know, it was the box and one against Toronto that yielded all those corner threes that you know, it seemed like Marcus Smart would hit a bunch in the first quarter and then the team would go cold. The quality of the shots they got have gotten has been consistently really good against very good defenses. Um, and so I do think there is like another level to, to to the Celtics offense, particularly sort of having correctly adjusted to the heat zone, which to me, this has been there's another like overarching theme of these playoffs is that it's felt like this is a so the question is like who can solve who? And clearly, and that started for me with the Bucks. The concern going in is that they are solvable. They have been solved in the past. They got solved last year. Miami solved the Bucks. Not a complicated problem. I think we all kind of, as we all sort of suspected, um, solved. And then you see in this series, like you said, that zone looked like I had the thought of like, wow, Boston is never going to score against this. There's just <laughs> no way. They can't do it. Like they, it just looked totally hopeless. And, and then like, just obviously that's not the case because you saw that one play. I forget who was actually doing the passing, but it was just a cut from the wing. And I think smart found maybe Jalen Brown cutting in. It's like, Oh yeah, you can just cut against the zone that works. Or, Oh yeah. You can sort of just pull bam out of bio away from the bucket. And now you get layups again. There's just all these, the tactical stuff is really fascinating, but also sort of the narrative I think is really fun because You've got the heat, you know, the the heat culture is so buzzy and, and you love that like this, they're not underdogs, but I wrote, I underrated them and I'm, I think you probably did too. And they just look like they could win a title maybe. And then Boston, I think is, you know, looked like they should have just crushed the Raptors. OG Ananobi hits that shot and now they're in a series. These young guys get validated in a pressure cooker again. And I just love the... The, the young players, the angles, the narratives. I don't know, maybe I was just starved by, the, you know, months off during the pandemic and then the bubble stuff. But um, I just I just keep coming back to how how good this has been from, from really every perspective. Yeah, and the thing that I, keeps coming back to me with Miami is like, yes, I underrated them, but there's also like that trade in the middle of the season really seemed to swing their year. And I, I don't know if it necessarily happened in the moment, but like Jay Crowder is just the perfect example to me is he ended up being essentially the primary defender against Giannis for those, what, like two and a half games that he actually played or whatever. Spent a ton of time on Chris Middleton. Even in this series, like you just have someone now that you're going to put on Kemba Walker or Jalen Brown. Like that's all of a sudden you just have that guy. And so it's so like that helped them uh, so much just for their defensive optionality, I think, because a lot of the lineups that Jimmy Butler and Bam Adebayo were carrying, they were basically probably surrounded by suboptimal defenders at all three spots, I would say. And so it just didn't seem tenable. And to have him and then um, Iguodala for however many minutes that he can actually give you going going night to night just turns out to be absolutely huge for them. And it actually just, I, I'm more fascinated by, um, and I don't mean to get away from the actual basketball with it, but like how this sort of just impacts what happens now with them? Because everyone's like, oh, they're going to sign Victor Oladipo in free agency in 2021, or they're going to go after Giannis in 2021. And it's like, can they even afford to sit on cap space for that long when their team is this good now and 
particularly when you have free agents and Crowder and and Drogic to entering the open market, maybe you can get them for really just one year inflated deals. But like this, this isn't about the Heat like wedging open a title window. Now all of a sudden it's about oh they're they're in this window and they could, like they are two wins away from the NBA Finals as we're recording this, and that's just like a something I've struggled to to grapple with just just in the present, but then also just looking at their future as well. Yeah, well, they they were the team that was most sort of telegraphing their 2021 aims, um, I thought. And, you know, and Giannis or whoever, the good class, but Giannis is obviously at the top of that list for everybody. To, and and maybe that'll, you know, what might solve a lot of their, Besides a lot of the, the uncertainty is he just, yeah, just signed the Supermax. And now maybe, Can, maybe. Do you have the, time to hear my quick theory on that? I would what? love to hear your theory on that. If I'm Giannis and I want to stay in Milwaukee, I'm still not signing the Supermax because two of the teams that want him the most are in the East, in Toronto and Miami. So why not screw with them? And if they're going to you know, remain in lurch while he remains unsigned, the money's going to be there for Giannis either way. Like it's not The only thing that he actually gains by delaying it is salary cap clarity. So maybe he knows whether he should sign actually a shorter deal. But he could have, and I don't want to name an injury, I don't want him to get one, but he could have the most devastating injury possible and they're still going to max him out anyway. And so the money isn't in jeopardy there. So if I'm Giannis, I'm totally doing that because you need to mess with the competition in the conference in, in my mind. I, so I think I hadn't thought of the, the if, he's, if he knows he's committed to Milwaukee, he ought to do, you know, he ought to leave those other teams kind of hanging out there because it could be a negative for them. But, but I agree. And I think that that's smart. And, and if I were him and I felt that way, I would do that too. But the, the main thing, like the Kevin Durant example is the most obvious one, right? Like I think, you, you know, torn Achilles, that's, a, that's the injury that you don't have to name because that's one that is just sort of on the very short list of, Oh, this is a career ender and signs a max deal uh, right away. Mm-hmm. So you're signing trade, whatever. Like it didn't hurt him. He's older than Giannis. He has not won back-to-back MVPs. I don't not comparing the two, like who's better where this is not a goat conversation, but like, yeah. So Giannis has, I just, the money is going to be there full stop. So I think if I'm him, I don't want to sign that Supermax at all. The only reason you sign the Supermax, I think is to not have to face a full year of the same questions again. Yeah, that's um, a great point. And like, I don't know what that's worth, but that's worth, that's gotta be worth something because it's a huge distraction. It's a, it's just a whole thing and it's just gotta be mind numbing to have to deal with that. But, um, it, other than that, like, I just don't know why you, why, if you're him, you, you lock into some, cause like, what if, I don't know, what if Chris Middleton gets hurt this year or like what, what or in 21, right. what, what if something else happens and you're, and you're stuck on a team that really has no way to change. That's, that's a whole, a whole other set of factors to consider. Yeah, I mean, you want to keep pressure on the organization, too, to not be complacent. Um, just because you, he still has leverage, even if he's under contract for four or five years. But the threat of free agency also means a bunch. I did not mean to drag it into a free agency discussion. <laughs> even though sports had a break, your business didn't. You have to keep moving, and that makes hiring more important than ever. Indeed is here to help. Indeed.com is the number one job site in the world because it gives you the best people fast. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. Plus, Indeed provides powerful tools to make your search that much easier, like sponsored jobs, which are shown to be three and a half times more likely to result in the hire. With 73% of online job seekers visiting Indeed each month, Indeed is going to get you the important hire you need, just like they have for over 3 million businesses. 
Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a free $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Offer is valid through September 30th, which is my birthday, so you know it's good. Uh, is there... Do you have anything else on just the Heat Celtics? Has there been just anything, you know, that you're going to watch moving forward specifically from from a player um, that maybe that can shift the tenor of the series? What is it going to take for, you know, because Boston is still kind of on the ropes here. Uh, are, are you looking at, you know, how, are, do they need another, you know, three-point detonation from Marcus Smart in one of these games? Just what are you still watching for in Celtics Heat? Um, I th- a couple things. I have a question for you too. But the first thing is um, I had the thought during, I guess it was game three, maybe game two, um, where I think last time we talked, I was kind of, I was like less, I was very high on Jason Tatum, but I don't think I was as high as you were. And I, and I'm ready to admit that you were right. Um, but I've had the thought several times during this series of like, I want to buy all of the Jason Tatum stock as in there is a, there is a realistic scenario in three years where he's the best player in the sport. Like I just, I, I don't feel that way all the time, but I think he had, there was a play on the right block where he basically did a dream shake where he sort of had not, not the like David Robinson, you know, up and under, up and under three times thing, but where he doesn't really establish a pivot foot like Olajuwon used to do and did this just filthy fake one way baseline spin where even like right up to the moment he made the move, you didn't know what pivot foot he was using, which is a vintage Olajuwon thing. Mm-hmm. And I'm just like, okay, I, that's cash me out. Right. Like I want every piece of Tatum stock. So I think one way the Celtics turn, you know, I don't know if turn it around is the right way, but, you know, take game four and, you know, sort of grab a hold of the series again is if you just get a Tatum game where uh, the attention is still too strongly on Kimball Walker, Jalen Brown's playing well enough to command a lot of attention um, and Tatum gets you 40. I don't know if the Heat are capable of letting someone do that, but I think that's, that's a, that's your like, you know, talk radio, we need a big Tatum game to do this, like very surface level take, but I do feel like he can do that. And I feel like that's possible. The thing I want to ask you was um, going back to really starting in the Toronto series, it has seemed like Kemba Walker is a huge priority for every opposing defense. Um, like, you know, Toronto played the box and one seemingly to just avoid getting its bigs involved in pick and roll and pick and pop with Walker. And then the heat have really put a lot of emphasis on keeping Walker out of pick and roll and just kind of focusing on him, which seems weird to me because, you know, Tatum is obviously the best offensive player on the team, but there must just be something about what Walker can do that has these opposing coaches, good coaches, extra concerned. Have you noticed that? What's your theory on that? Like, is it surprising to you that Walker has been such a point of emphasis? And he hasn't played well as a result, I think, but, but it seems like a weird thing to me. I wonder if you noticed that. Yeah, so I I guess I didn't give as much thought as you, but it is, you know, looking back when Toronto ran the box and won against Walker at some point too, I believe. And so Yeah, no, they did. And so giving that focus to to Kemba, I, I guess it is bizarre with Tatum, but I guess it isn't Walker if you end up switching a pick and roll more of a mismatch than Jason Tatum is technically. Like he's just quicker. I don't know if you're gonna you're not gonna trust him as the same type of finisher around the rim, but he is going to be the better passer anyway. And so it's more about kind of taking those extra elements out? Um, or is it just you're confident, more confident that, hey, we can remove him from the equation. He's just, he's smaller. And so if we're going to be able to neutralize him, 
like Tatum can do whatever. And we've seen variants in his game where maybe he's not going to go all the way to the basket, or maybe he's not always going to make the the less obvious pass, which he's done. A, he's done a great job of for most of the the playoffs, and he's averaging five point seven assists per game in this series. That's I don't even that might just be total crap thinking. I honestly have no idea, but that's that's like one or two theories I could float out would be those. Yeah, it's it's felt like it's felt like at least the Toronto bit. It felt like a challenge to Tatum to be to be a playmaker, which I think he's less comfortable doing than just getting buckets. Um, and that and, would be the difference. Where if you're saying he's going to be the best player in the world in the next three years, uh, you know, when you look at the other players in contention for that, they'll obviously be maybe Giannis will probably still be in that discussion at that time. But if you're looking specifically at let's say a Luka Doncic, uh, it's because he's the primary engine of the offense as a passer. And because Tatum's never going to be at that level, even if he is, you know, a, a peak passer to like the best of whatever you think he can be. Like if he's averaging, you know, what does he need to average four or five assists per game to be like peak where it's, you know, his, his offense, if it's still efficient and what he does on defense, like that's going to make up the difference because I think really why James Harden is just so good um, relative to a lot of other players is yes, there's the scoring, but he separates himself so much as a passer that you can, there are players that you could just, you could throw their defensive cases just entirely out the window because they're never even going to come close to sniffing the value that Harden adds alone as just a playmaker. Yeah, I think that's right. You would never challenge a guy like, like Harden or Luca, obviously it's totally different because you just can't get the ball out of Luca, Luca's hands really anyway, but you would never challenge those guys to sort of beat you in a four on four or a four on three Mm -hmm. by, you know, hard trapping Kemba or doing a bunch of weird you know, that, that's like, an, I think it probably does speak to Tatum has, you know, you know, things to iron out, but I thought he handled that stuff pretty well. Um, but I, I'm just, uh, I'm kind of just waiting for him to really have one of those games in this series. And again, the heat may just not let that happen, but, um, you know, talk about a narrative that could really get going is like, this is the Tatum arrival tour. Um, just following up his regular season arrival of now. Oh yeah. He can, he can, he can carry a, a, a very good team to a, to the finals, like, you know, against a very, very good defense. I think, I think I'd like to see that. I, I don't just as a fan, but I, I don't know how realistic that is against this good of a defense. This is like um, a good series. Someone's going to overturn like a preconceived notion where it's, you know, Tatum was on the rise, but people were wondering, and even you who you weren't even trying yeah. to be hot takey, is he a top 10 player yet? Like, is he a best player on a contender material? And then there's also, there's been that same stuff with Jimmy Butler, I think predominantly because he's been on so many different teams, which was, definitely an unfair stance. If you just look at the track record of all the the crummy front offices that he left, like, yeah, you know what? He might grade on some people, but it's not like he was uh, in these great situations either. Uh, but one of those two is going to the finals and they're going to be the best player on their team when they get yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's amazing. I think too, that um, the, the, well, the preconceived notion that's going to get flipped is, is I came into this series thinking, the, you know, the Heat, they were ready. They were better prepared for a Bucks team that you just, you know, I was just not that it didn't, it didn't elevate the Heat to me to some higher level that they, that they just kind of cracked Milwaukee just because that was so foreseeable. Mm-hmm. Um, and I thought that Boston, you know, they can do so many different things. You can't, you know, they don't play one way. Um, they have all these, you know, the, Brad Stevens is a mad genius, like all that stuff. I just, I thought Boston was going to, not have a hard time in this series, to be honest. <laughs> just, oh, really? Yeah, I really did. I just, well, part of that was because I regarded the Raptors so highly. I really, I just, I have so much, we didn't talk about this, I don't think, but I have so much respect for the Raptors, even though they should have been down 3-0. Um, and maybe because they should have been down 3-0 and still pushed that thing to the brink, 
with just that game six was, I mean, like a chef's kiss for the entire game. Um, I just, uh, I, I love the Raptors so much that I thought Boston beating that team really meant a lot. And I thought that that Miami beating Milwaukee meant quite a bit less. Um, and I think maybe I just sort of was too high on one and too low on the other. And it turns out these teams are both actually pretty evenly matched. That's probably a fair, that's probably a fair stance to land on. I mean, look, Milwaukee was, Giannis was injured and the coach wasn't playing his players enough. The coach, I call him the coach instead of Mike Bunnell. <laughs> like, I don't know who he is. Because uh, he's still the coach and you're surprised. Right, I think, yeah. what it is. Uh, so I think I th- a lot of people are playing that, but I saw a lot of Celtics in five predictions. I, I don't know. I didn't have to put a game number on it, but I really, I, everyone I talked to, I was like, they're going to win the series. I thought Miami would get, win game one because Boston played, had all of its starting five played like 90 total minutes over the previous two games. But I thought that even with Miami winning game one, that Boston would win the series. It's still alive, but the series has not progressed quite how I thought it would. Uh, um, I, you want to talk West? Yeah, you want to get into more thoughts? I took Celtics and seven in this one. And then I took out of, I don't know what it was, stubbornness, but I started to get. Not a lot of credit, but I picked the Nuggets to win the title in the beginning of the season. I flip-flop waffled on that so much. I even picked the Clippers to win the series against the Nuggets. I don't think I deserve credit for (laughs) uh, naming them as a title pick, but I went with Nuggets in seven in this series because, one, I was impressed. I thought that their depth would end up being a lot more reliable than L.A.'s. Um, probably a flawed thinking in that is that LeBron and AD actually haven't really had to play that much during these playoffs, so that, you know, worrying about depth is probably stupid. Still... Um, I feel like there are, I have a question to ask you about Anthony Davis eventually, but I think in the the context of the series, I'm assuming you picked the Lakers um, or you're probably in the camp of the Lakers are definitely going to win this series. Do you see anything though that's like encouraging for Denver and not just, oh, they almost won game two, that they can hang on going forward? And, uh, and what specifically is it? Like, is it, you know, they're, they're going to shoot better than 21% on wide open threes during the rest of the series. Is it something like that? Um, or do you kind of just think that this is fate to complete LeBron senses? It's his best chance to win a title probably with the Lakers, given that golden state will be back next year and all the up and coming teams, yada, yada, yada. Well, I think the answer, I mean, there's certainly there are undeniable, much bigger picture reasons to be really encouraged by Denver. Um, you know, that's obvious that the resiliency they've shown the experience that they're getting from playing in all these elimination games, Murray kind of, I think Murray has quietly just become the guy that we kind of thought he was going to be, um, you know, in the last couple of years, anytime he had a big game, I felt like there was always this call to sort of be like, okay, Murray's the next guy. And I definitely have said that. I'm sure I wrote something about that when he had a big playoff game in the last postseason. But I think that's, you know, and Jokic just being, you know, not the guy that you can play off the floor with pick and rolls anymore Um, and and their chemistry together, all that stuff. Porter Jr. looking like a really good third option, that type of thing. Um, But sort of more micro than macro, I I do really think that um, Denver should be encouraged by the fact that you can just throw the ball to Jokic in the post against an all-world defender. And if he doesn't score over him like he did for what we thought was going to be the game winner, um, he's going to find the guy that needs to get a shot. And so when your offense can kind of be simplified to that extent, it's very hard for even a good defense, and the Lakers are one of those, to kind of shut down your offense for an extended stretch. Just because Jokic is always going to do the right thing, mm-hmm. and maybe that's not the right word. Maybe it's Jokic is always going to prevent you from taking away all of his options because he can score – 
and he's going to find the passing lane that nobody else can see. And because the Nuggets all know he's going to do that, they never stop running around and finding those cutting areas and good spots to, to sort of set up shop for a kickout. So I think the Lakers' strength is still their defense, but when the Nuggets know they have someone that can just kind of manufacture consistently good looks, I think you can always be encouraged by that. But I, yeah, I, I do think, um, to get to your other point, I, you know, I picked the Lakers. I just thought that, you know, Denver's more than a nice story, but you, you don't, the, you're still, you know, to come back from a 3-1 deficit, you're down 3-1 twice. And, you know, there's a realistic possibility that they don't even get out of that Utah series if that crazy Conley shot goes down. So um, I think it's not, it's so cliche to be like, oh, the magic ran out or, or whatever, but the Lakers are a different animal. The Nuggets just can't, they're not quite there is all I'm saying. And and they've had an incredible run and they may get there, but it just felt like, you know, this was about as far as we could realistically expect them to get. The finals to me didn't feel like a realistic possibility. Yeah. And there's like, there's still something it feels like missing from Denver's wing rotation. Even when you're accounting for like Michael Porter Jr.'s learning curve, which on some nights it doesn't even feel like it exists. Like yeah. he'll just make good rotations on defense or he'll be shooting the hell out of the ball. But like when you're playing um, PJ Doge in crunch time, uh, PJ Dozier in crunch time, excuse me, I can't talk tonight. It's like, there's something like he, he really did make some good defensive plays, but he was he one did. of five at the foul line. Like you're, if you're in that position, like that's not an optimal position to be in. Like yeah. it's you know what you know what they need. Sorry to jump in, but like they need they need good Gary Harris all the time. That's that's who that guy needs to be, and they they get him sometimes, and that's when the Nuggets I think look really kind of special. But they don't. Yeah, like to your point, Dozier was in over Harris, and Harris has kind of been a non-entity so far. Um, they that's what they need is that other wing that can kind of do sort of everything and defend, and they just don't have it. The thing I wanted to ask you though is like so Anthony Davis and look maybe that's something else by the way that uh, the the Nuggets can kind of hang their their hat on is that Anthony Davis is three of seven from deep in this series he's hit like some especially in game two hit a bunch of difficult jumpers like you probably on most nights would count on those not going down but it does seem that like this is now being turned into like Anthony Davis is like fine of finally writing his legacy and like oh he's he's so good like he's even been underrated to this point I kept seeing tweets that Anthony Davis is better than Giannis and Nikola Jokic um, being retweeted into to my feed. And I'm just like, I'm not even trying to knock against, this isn't a knock against Davis, but was he underrated to begin with? Like, wasn't this someone who was just consistently in the top five to seven at worst top 10 discussion? Oh yeah. No, I've had this, I had the exact same thought. It's, it, I mean, you can get to that point very often in like the whole concept of an underrated player is like, well, if we're asking if he's underrated, is, is he just by definition no longer underrated? Because we're all sort of agreeing that that was the wrong right. stance. But, but like, but especially for him is it's it's almost you can almost tie it to LeBron being pissed about the MVP a little bit in that like, yeah, man, I, I like nobody's gonna say that you're not the best player in the world. Like to your, fa- I just I don't know. It, it's it's sort of a it's an argument that no one's really making. Um, but I will say that probably like 10 or 15 minutes before I hit the game winner in real time, I did have the thought of, man, Anthony Davis is really good, like great, but I actually don't think he can be your best player. Um, or at least he can be your guy. If he, if, if LeBron's not there, if it's put someone else that's close to LeBron and Davis then is clearly the leader of the team, the best player, like 
maybe I'm setting myself up for failure because he'll just prove me wrong in a year or two when he's the best player on a Lakers team that wins it all. But like, he's just, look, he, he's really great. Uh, he is a top five to seven guy, but I don't think that's the same thing as saying he can be, he can do what LeBron does or, you know, what Steph Curry did or, you know, the very, like very, very rarefied air of the guy that is the best player and most important player on a title team that I, I, I don't want to knock him either. Um, cause then he hit the game winner <laughs> like <laughs> shortly after I had that thought, but, but the, I, I have to cop to actually thinking that. It's a thought that's crossed my mind too, really frequently. And I think, look, you're in, you might call him a top five player, but if you know, ask someone, who are you starting a team? You want to win this season, like throw future out of the equation. Who do you want to build your team around? I don't know that he's going to be one of the first or seven guys that you name because um, you know, playmaking is so important. That's not something he's going to do. And then look, he has like, he can put the ball on the floor. He can take those, those fadeaways. He can take those step backs, but he's historically not hit those at a high clip. He's even not been like a good set three point shooter. And so I think that's an easy way to talk yourself out of him. What I do keep coming back to is I, I almost feel like we then undervalue, and this isn't you. I think, I think it's even me when I have the initial thought, but it's people who think that he's overrated. I feel like they're undervaluing what he actually does because it's so tough to um, maybe sometimes quantify or maybe you take it for granted. And so the two things I'd point to is one, there's his defense. And so yeah. a lot of people pointed out that the Lakers were better um, or about dead even defensively with him off the court this season. And like, there are so many things that go into that, like the lineups that you're facing, but also a lot of his Le- non LeBron minutes are coming with Rondo and Kuzma, who's been okay defensively for like pretty quietly, like two seasons now, but like those lineups are tough to carry. And even if KCP's in there, like you're still dealing with a lot of then at that point, like overmatched um, just defensive assignments. And so you're trying to cover up for a whole bunch or you have to cover up for a whole bunch. And then the other thing for me is like his offense. Yes. There are those times where he deviates, but he can score 30, 40 points just completely within the flow of the offense. And I don't think that you should take, it can be taken for granted because I don't know that you realize it. It's like there's, there are these players where you're watching them and you don't even realize that they just hung 25. And I sometimes feel like, uh, if he's not always putting the ball on the floor, he's one of those players. And so to get out in transition, to just be willing to to run the floor, to be able to score off um, all those passes, like there's just such a convenience in that. But it's this high-end convenience that very few uh, players have. And then the last thing I'll point out too is just he creates all sorts of mismatches at his position. And just the defensive questions you have to ask yourself, whether you're running small, whether you're running big. And it's like the case with the Nuggets is, you know, they're not, Paul Millsap has spent the most time guarding him in this series, but, and these numbers aren't perfect, but in the time that Nikola Jokic has spent guarding him and he's been by possession and minutes, the second most frequent defender on Anthony Davis, the Lakers as a team are averaging 1.78 points per possession on the possessions (laughs) that Jokic guards Anthony Davis. And he just creates all sorts of those matchup issues that yes Jokic might be an extreme but like name another big you're not you're mostly not going to want them on Anthony Davis yeah it's in, it made me think of something and I think it's it's an oversimplification but it sort of explains both how he, there's this idea that he's underrated and our sort of half confident feeling that he isn't quite like the guy you'd pick to start a franchise with and I think it's just because he's not a guy that, you know, gets his own that, that often in the, in the sort of traditional obvious way of, 
of a Kawhi or even like a Doncic or, you know, Giannis or all these, it's, it's, it's just, uh, I think we, I don't know if overvalue, but we definitely extremely highly value the guy that is going to create a shot for himself or someone else. And Davis, like you said, he can get you 30 garbage points and they still count the same, but I don't feel like it seems the same when you're trying to evaluate a player and say, you know, is he absolutely the best of the best? I think we just, we put such an emphasis on that, on a skill set that he doesn't really, uh, that's not his absolute strongest attribute. All right. It's not necessarily supposed to be, but I, I think what, I don't know if we overvalue it or not. It's a good point by you, but the most important shot in basketball, I think right now is, like the off the dribble three, like you can get more granular with it. Like, is it the step back? Is it the escape dribble three? Is it just the regular pull up three? But that feels like it's become the most important shot. And that's not Anthony Davis's game. And even look, I, like in the playoffs, he's been absolutely dominating. Um, more than 58% of his buckets have come off assists. And in the regular season, I think it was right. It was even higher. 63.2% of his baskets has come off assists. And that's like actually not that high when you just look relative to his position. Most of those guys if they're going to be regular, like traditional fours, or if you're just going to play the five, you're normally just not creating your own shot. It's Jokic and maybe Carl Anthony Towns at this point and Joel Embiid. Like you could start, you could probably count the players on one hand or at least definitely um, less than both of your hands. So it's like a, it's like a criticism. It's not a criticism against him, but it's also like kind of a fact of life. Like that does feel like the from scratch creators are the most important building blocks right now. And then here's something to think about. And maybe we could we could wrap the Davis thing on this, but you just keep making me think of things. Um, I'm I sorry, think that, I apologize. No, no, no. <laughs> I, this this is why we have to have these conversations. Otherwise, my half formed uh, thoughts don't get aired. Um, think think of it this way. It occurs to me that Davis might be if you're an opposing coach in a playoff series, and your whole your whole deal is, well, how do we take away what player X does best? And to use the Walker example, it's like, well, we can't let him get downhill in the pick and roll. We're going to trap him, right? There's ways to scheme. So, so I think Davis might be one of the most difficult guys to prevent from doing what he wants to do and to, to, or put it another way to scheme against, because like we've, we've said it already, he's just going to get a bunch of points in the flow. So like, okay, let's, let's set our whiteboard up in the locker room for Anthony Davis and say like, here's the three things we gotta, we gotta do. We gotta uh, be more athletic than him. Mm -hmm. So he can't get on the offensive boards. Not possible. Uh, We gotta be, I don't know, more skilled uh, so we can stay in front of him uh, as he's kind of running around screens and like a six ten guy's trying to can't do that. So you just go down the list and he's not schemable. Um, th- so, I mean, th- consider the value in that as like an opposing coach, you just sort of throw up your hands and say like, well, I hope we box him out or I hope we can drag him away from the basket and he's not quick enough to recover to, to help on drives, which he is. And he always d- like, there's just, so that aspect of it is maybe we're thinking about this wrong because what you want in a playoff series is a guy that can't be prevented from doing the stuff he's good at. And, and so far nobody has stopped Davis from doing the stuff he's good at. Yeah, that's a that's a great point too. Uh, I do find it weird though that I just didn't think that it has Anthony Davis been underrated was going to become a topic during these playoffs. Mm-hmm. Like, it just no. didn't see that we, coming. We got to talk about something, I guess. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season, from game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props. BetOnline gives you more options to wager on than anywhere else. 
you can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, division odds, and championship futures all day, every day. Head to Bet Online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word, at betonline.ag. That's BLUEWIRE, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. Two more things I want to ask you. We'll stick with the Lakers for this one. So I'm assuming you saw LeBron's comments on his receiving only 16, I say only, but I mean 16 first place MVP votes really isn't nothing. Uh, so you saw those comments, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. What do you make of the whole thing? Because I, where I'm going to land on it, and I'd rather you get more nuance than um, than I will, and I'll, of course, respond to you. He's he's like right, because the thing that stood out to me is he said, I don't know how much we are really watching the game of basketball or we're just in narration mode. And so I tend to agree with him that narrative does play a huge part, but he's also someone in this case, who benefits from it because there were the few people, it wasn't a lot, who were talking about, you know, leading the Lakers through this pandemic and then Kobe's death, like that needed to buoy him up. And one, he's not the only person leading his team through a pandemic and everyone's living through the pandemic. Two, the Kobe stuff, it it makes me cringe whenever it's brought up, like where everything the Lakers do is like, oh, was this for Kobe? Um, That stuff makes me uncomfortable to begin with. And then also even though, oh, look at what he's doing in his age 35 campaign, like, well, why does that get evaluated differently in the MVP discourse just because he's older. So he does benefit from some of it. But I do think what he really touched on is that one, I would be in favor of them probably shrinking the voting process. I think media are absolute. if you're going to do it, um, the media are probably the best people to do it just because we've seen how seriously the players take the all-star voting and hint, hint, it's not very serious (laughs) at all. Um, And then the other thing is that there probably needs to be, whether it's a separation of awards where you have a best player and then a most valuable player, or just a specific set of criteria, because everyone's judging it differently, where with LeBron, it's, you know, maybe the narrative matters, or they're looking at, well, look how bad the Lakers were on the court without him. And it's like, okay, well, Giannis statistically elevated his team by just as much, if not more, the problem is that they were just still good without him. Do we penalize him because he brought a good team to great and LeBron brought a a, what would be a so-so to crappy team to like really good bordering on great. And there it's such a confusing topic to discuss, but I do think, you know, he's kind of the first player that I feel like has really hit on it where it's like, uh, he's like pointing out like Marcus all winning defensive player of the year in 2013, but he was in all defensive second team. So that stuff, you know, the voting process, I actually do think that there's like an issue with it. And, and the ambiguity, I think, does stand out more than anything else. And the last thing I'll say is I still think the right player won the regular season award uh, because it is a regular season award. Yeah, I think so. Let's before I kind of give you my two cents. Um, do you think that if let's say that we held the voting today and 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 the Lakers are up 2-0, Giannis is at home. Um, we all saw his Bucks get beat the way they did. We, you know, the injury kind of complicates things for him, but uh, you have to, let's say you had to consider the last six, eight weeks or whatever it's been. Mm. Probably, yeah. Do, does does Giannis still win the award? And like, you still consider his regular season numbers, you still consider the Bucks record, but you also consider what happened uh, post-bubble. Do you think he still wins? I do, because I do think that, arguing look at the larger sample size will eventually win out but it's probably closer but i still think that he would end up winning the award right i think i agree and i think what that tells us is that we're actually seeing the parameters or the criteria for the award reaching more of a consensus um and that is to say that 
as resistant as I think a lot of like, you know, bigger media personalities are and the basketball community at large are towards analytics and just numbers and looking at the stats and all that stuff. I think what we're seeing and Giannis's award proves it is that like, that's the safest way to vote because if you did, so say you voted for LeBron uh, or, or someone else, you would get shouted down by everyone saying, look at the Bucks record, look at Giannis's mm. stats, look at, look at his, his BPM, his whatever catch all you want. We are in truly historic territory. If that's not value, I don't know what is like, and that's a real, like, I don't I like, I'm with you. I think he probably should have won MVP. Um, so I think what that tells us is that like LeBron saying we're caught up in narrative. I think I think if anyone benefits from narrative, it's probably him for a lot of the reasons you said, a lot of the sort of, in, you know, additional factors beyond his play on the court that would have made his candidacy more compelling than Giannis's. But I think what it shows us is that like people are just looking at the numbers um, more than more than anything else, because it, they're they're a very good way to base a good thing to base your decisions on. It's a good way to make sure you're being rational and not caught up in narrative. Um, and I think to me, as much as anything, Giannis was just the obvious pick, but only if you're focusing on the numbers, because that's why I asked the question about if we're talking about, if we considered these last few weeks, because you could not conclude that Giannis was the the best player in the, in the league based on that. You, you might think it was Nick Jokic. You might think it was LeBron. You might, you know, you could pick a bunch of Jimmy, you might, whatever. You might have Gary Trent Jr. for a minute. It could be Gary Trent, right? It could be Gary <laughs> Trent Jr. I mean, uh, you know, Trey Burke had a hot run there for a minute and made me really think twice. Like, yeah. So I think that's kind of, that's my take on it. I, I, I just seems like the numbers are sort of starting to win. Um, and I don't think that's good or bad. I think the MVP is always going to be controversial, but, uh, but that was sort of my takeaway from, from Giannis. And I, I think LeBron kind of got it wrong. Um, even though like if, if, again, if we voted today, I probably would vote for him. I, yeah. I think he got it wrong in this context, but I also like think that he touched on like actual issues with it. The, oh yeah. Um, but it's like the, I, I, I don't know how you necessarily outline more specific criteria. I actually think there probably was a case to be made for LeBron, but the way that some people framed it, is I think what you know incites the outrage. That being said, I think they're you know one of the things that we should stop overreacting to is that one of the best players in the world or these professional athletes who need to have a ton of confidence to be at the level they're at, thinking that they're the best and that they should have won stuff because that's just going to happen whether you think whether they have a valid point or not. And then the other thing is that we don't have to react to outrage to everything because not everything needs to be. In, in sports, when we're talking about the actual sport itself, the stuff happening on the court, there doesn't need to be this consensus. Now, do I understand when people get angry about the egregious stuff? Yes. And that's where I might be in favor of voting, uh, seeing like the number of votes shrink for, you know, the all NBA teams or the all defense teams and stuff. The notion that Maria Taylor doesn't deserve a vote is batshit crazy, but looking at others who maybe don't cover the sport consistently. Um, and I'm not, I'm not trying to single anyone out, but it's like, does, if you're only covering the NBA, like if you're just a general sports person, like why do you need to vote on the NBA stuff? Um, certainly I would even consider like if you're affiliated with a certain team or your beat is to cover one team, like how important is it for them to have a vote on these league wide uh, topics or, or awards? And I'm not trying to diminish the work that anyone does either, because there are team like beat writers who take it very seriously. And I'm not trying to call anyone out who doesn't, you know, agree with the consensus or agree with my thoughts or people who I respect thoughts. Uh, but if you know, there's like a disconnect, if someone's voting Luka Doncic for all defense, 
Like there's just a, <laughs> there's a disconnect somewhere. And like, I'm not even just trying to be mean there. So I don't necessarily know what the solution is, or but maybe being more selective with who has votes would be a great place to start. Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's just, it's just, uh, it's really hard to sort of hit the middle of the Venn diagram of really follows the league incredibly closely and does not have a bias because they follow one team closer than every other team. Right. You know, like that's a, that's a thin slice in there. Um, and I just, I, I think maybe like th- this is maybe the best we're going to do and we're just going to have to live with it because I don't know how, how you're going to sort of uh, parse that any, any more that, finely. And that's like, yeah, there's no, even on like the stuff on the stuff that matters where there shouldn't be two sides. Like I get it, but like, there's no such thing as like a non outrageous debate at this point. Like everyone's shamed um, <laughs> for what's actually like regular opinions. I'm, I'm talking specifically about the things that are happening on the court. So yeah, I don't. I, I think I'm with you. you. Probably can't fix it, but maybe if you were more selective again with who has votes, that might do some of it. But I also see where you're coming from too. Yeah, well, I always think back to. I think it was someone voted for Carmelo for MVP, and I do remember the person's name. I'm not going to call him out, but it was the only vote he got. Like I forget however many years ago it was. No, 2013, it was, I think. Yeah, it was. It was recent enough where it was like. Carmelo's still pretty good, but that's ridiculous. You know, it was the Knicks. Yeah, it was that Knicks fifty-four win season. Whatever. Yeah, you benefit from one being on the Knicks, and they were just better than you expected them to be. Like that's a like yeah. a narrative boon. It, I would say. it wasn't even a Knicks guy though. <laughs> yeah. Some, yeah, that's true. Yeah, that's true. Guy. Yeah, it didn't make any sense. Oh uh, yeah. Anyway, um, you mentioned Paul George. Is that one real quick topic we want to hit? Did you see yeah, about? Uh, I was going to say, do you, you know, still have time for that, or you want me to get you out of here? Yeah. No. I, let's let's do that because. Um, well, what are your thoughts? I think I'll just say that uh, it's it's real weird to me when the specifics of of eye rolling gets gets leaked. Um, <laughs> right. and we're talking about Shams Charania's report that Paul George, you know, tried to I, not rally the troops because the series is over, but sort of say like the word I think preaching was even used, which feels like a lot of editorializing to me. He was like, yeah, saying let's run it back and win the chip. And it's like, you know, maybe you should have given a similar speech like after game six. Game well, right. Seven. Yeah. I, I mean, like I'm as, yeah, yeah, there's not a game eight, Paul, but, but <laughs> I feel like, uh, I feel like it's always fascinating to me to start to think about like, why, why did this come out? Who 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 decided to let it out, uh, and and what's what what agendas are at work, right? Because right. clearly someone in the room decided that uh, this needs to be in the public, uh, and it's going to be bad for Paul George, and let's do it anyway. So that I mean, as much as anything, you we hear whispered about the chemistry, and and that was a subject of it too. But it's like if that's happening. That's rough. That that tells mm-hmm. me that um, whether the eye rolling happened or not, or whether Paul George was quote unquote preaching, um, there is like a real problem in in sort of the dynamics of that team. Uh, and I feel like maybe Paul George, you know, I also like I kind of think that yeah, Paul George uh, has just generally not performed well in the playoffs, and that's his reputation, and it was solidified. And there were I think you know to be fair to him maybe injury. He did. He said that he'd been struggling with mental health in the bubble. Totally understandable. Um, but, but it, 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 so I think there's validity to what came out, but like, that's a damning thing for the Clippers. If the goal going forward is to sort of keep a lot of these guys around, because I don't know if you have sort of the lack of respect, uh, for your teammates, if that's like a salvageable thing. 
yeah, the I don't even know who has the incentive to leak it out. I know people sent the screenshot of uh, Sham Sharania interviewing Lou Williams and Montrezl Harrell way back oh, when. Oh, so, I didn't know that. Yeah. There you go. Suspects <laughs> one and two. Uh, I mean, look, Harrell's going to be a free agent and definitely probably lost money in the bubble. Uh, he wasn't with them to, to start, dealing with the death of his grandma. So all that stuff factors into it. But then also just this is a cap for a free agency landscape. Paul George isn't going anywhere. I think there were people that like spun this as like, oh, like Paul George for Bradley Beal. And like, that's not, that's not a thing. I think it's just more a, a sign of like, there needs to actually be measurable change in this locker room next season. Like, I don't know, you have the talent to win it all, but I'm not sure if there's like that the synergy, like the chemical synergy is there. And I'm not, you know, I'm not trying to overweight intangibles here, but if the first thing that happens uh, a couple of days after the season is that you have like Shams getting a, you know, a, a second by second breakdown. Like there was eye rolling. Someone twiddled their thumbs three thumbs, three times. Another person was picking his nose with his left, left, left uh, pointer <laughs> finger, like getting so specific that quickly. It seems like something's off. And they said they're going to target a playmaker via trade. I don't think they can offer a first round pick because their first available first round pick is in 2028. And so it's a seven years out <laughs> rule. And so I don't know how that would work. Uh, I don't think you can then, but it would be, imagine getting your hands on a 2028 first round pick. <laughs> what G like, so it's sort of like, you know, everybody thought Daryl Morey was going to ditch Houston and maybe that's not going to happen. So he was like, screw it. I don't <laughs> care what the, happens with these 2026 picks. It's like, yeah, I'll extend no, Eric Gordon. I'm not going to be yeah, here. <laughs> absolutely. This is like the reverse of that is like what GM has, has confidence enough in his job security to like acquire a 2028 pick. Right. He's not going to be there. Um, I, so I think you're, you're better at this stuff than I am, or probably think about it more. But to me, like if the Clippers are talking about changing their options, feel like subtraction and like nothing else because they're just, yeah, Harold's a free agent. I think Jermichael Green is going back into free agency. You can correct me if and when I get these wrong. He's a player um, but, option, which I'm for five million. That oh, I'm he, not, that's like less than the mini MLE. So I think he should opt out. But this, this market yeah. is just so weird. Right. Who knows what's happening? But like they don't have a good, if they sign and trade, they'll hard cap themselves. Like I just, what are their avenues to, where does this playmaker come from? I mean, like it's just, it's really difficult for me to see an impact guy getting there unless you trade Paul George. And I, I also don't think that's going to happen. Yeah. I think I'm totally with you. The one thing they have going for them is that if they're willing to kind of like bust up their depth a little bit, they can con- combine like some interesting salaries where it's, you know, Lou Williams is a usable player. Um, Zubox is an extremely useful player. Patrick Beverly, um, still like three and D ish, whatever you want to call him. There you have uh, Roddy Magruder as, as filler salary. You have Landry Shamit. Uh, I just don't know what that like gets you. Like I don't know if if you gave Shamit like as part of the deal. If this was Beverly Williams, Zubats, and Shamit, like is that getting you Drew Holiday? Oh man, I don't. I think you need a third no. team that would send the Pelicans at least another first round pick. Like and I don't know yeah. what player you know you could talk you could talk yourselves into any one of those players being good for New Orleans. But if you're trading Drew Holiday, you don't necessarily need any of those players. The other one that I've been a proponent of, and it's like, it's so wild and it's so out there, but, and it would be mostly on Oklahoma city wanting to just like save pure money. Like you can get to Chris Paul with the Clipper salaries. Like if you just went Beverly Williams, Zubats and Magruder, you can bring back Chris Paul. There's no way those two teams are trading again. There's like, there's no, how is that? There's no way. I, I can't, I can't maybe, imagine. Was it future considerations were maybe a part of that deal where now Oklahoma City does <laughs> yeah. Los Angeles a solid? Although I'm not sure that I could like, 
imagine Chris Paul in a locker room with Paul George. Like there's, if you, insofar as you could have three polar opposite players, Paul George, Chris Paul, and Kawhi Leonard would be it. Hey, you know what? It's, you, Kawhi it made me think of this. Um, like, so Paul George seems to be getting the fla- getting most of the flack to the extent that there's any flack uh, being distributed um, or catching flack, whatever. Um, how come we're not? Maybe this is out there. How come nobody's kind of saying like maybe Kawhi's not that great a leader? Um, like, I'm not saying I I think that. But it does seem like you maybe want to start at the top if if your team falls apart and its chemistry sucks. And I don't feel like anybody really did that. Maybe because Kawhi's just sort of already demonstrated, you know, I got two titles with two different teams. I I finals MVP, all to, all that stuff. Like he's unassailable. But you know that Toronto team, there's like seven really great leaders on last year's Raptors. Right. Um, and it's not like Kawhi was ever the, like the guy on a Spurs title team. So I do wonder if maybe, you know, obviously he's quiet. Obviously his leadership style to the extent he has one is unconventional. Um, I do think maybe he's getting off a little light. Have you had that thought or am I off base? No, I haven't really had that thought, but I also don't think you're off base. Maybe it's just more so like you, you know what Kawhi Leonard is now. And like, like you said, he is, there is that level of unassailability because he has the two finals MVPs and also when you have someone who plays I know it's not necessarily during the regular season but plays so hard at both ends when it matters most like they're probably exempt from more criticism than like a someone who's only going to be super valuable on one end like a James Harden you know like we're not going to destroy Kawhi Leonard when he goes like six of 19 from the floor or something like that um that being said you mentioned like Toronto with them having the great leaders and when you go to the Clippers locker room if that's not Paul George where it doesn't seem like his voice is respected then who is it? Because it does need to be someone amongst the players. And it does feel like it would probably be Trez, Beverly, and Lou Will. Lou Will. And it also feels like a lot of what those guys might like runs counter to everything that might get like Paul George and Kawhi Leonard going. Whereas those seem like guys that want to go 82-0. and And that would be their leadership style. And I think that I'm not even trying to, you know, hashtag load management because Kawhi, you know, really didn't miss that many games to load management this year. I think it was like sub 15, like he had an actual injury at one point, And I think it was sub 15 that he missed to just like scheduled maintenance. And one of those, I think was the final game of the bubble. So I'm just saying that he's not going to approach, like he's going to play the long game more than these players who have probably been underdogs now for most of their career, where Kawhi was also born into this um, basketball wise, this system, this culture in San Antonio, where he hasn't had to worry necessarily about leading to that degree either. Um, and they always took the long view. And then you go to Toronto where they really did take the long view, even though they only had him for a year because they were resting him on the second end of back to backs. And, um, they were giving him scheduled maintenance. And now you're going into Clippers land where there's not necessarily, uh, someone who's uh, like players who are, I guess, okay with that. If you're looking at Harold Beverly and Lou Williams, because there was the report at the beginning of the season that some of the Clippers were rubbed the wrong way with how the stars were being treated. And you're not going to have like, you know, Paul George isn't Kyle Lowry where it's Kyle Lowry seems like he would want to go 82 and 0, but understands the long game. And whereas Beverly and Lou William Harrell, as I keep saying, this isn't even a shot against them, but it feels like they would play or want to approach every game. Like it's a, a do or die situation. And I just don't see, and this is not a shot of Kawhi. I don't see him being as emotionally invested uh, that consistently or just in every game. Yeah, no, I think I was kind of not whatever falls a little short of being devil's advocate, because I think I I do send a fall towards the Kawhi. You can't, you sort of, 
the way that he plays, you really, you can't help but fall in line because there's never going to be a point where you can say to him after a loss, like you really could have done more, you know, like that just doesn't, he's like one of the few players where lead by example probably really works. Yes. It's been really like, yeah, exactly. So, so I think, you know, the reason he's probably not getting a lot of heat is because, you know, he's done it already. And and when you watch him play, even if he's having a rough game, there's really not going to be a question of, is he sort of cut out for this? I think that's like beyond question at this point, but I don't know. I think I do at the same time think, you know, the playoffs, I guess maybe this can be like a closing thought like the more than ever this year, the play, the playoffs have reminded me that like the regular season is its own thing. Mm-hmm. And this was a super weird regular season, which makes it even more complicated, but so much of, of what seems to matter during, you know, 82 games or however many we played this year um, just is not meaningless, but matters so much less in the playoffs. It just, everything changes. Uh, and, and I do think that what we've seen Look at the team. Look at the seeds that are playing. Yeah, the Lakers are the one seed, but you know you got the what the three and the five in the East, and the, uh, to me, those are clearly the two best teams. Just mm-hmm. I mean, top to bottom, and I don't think anybody, maybe the Celtics, but certainly not the Heat. And it's just, it's really, I don't know. It's going to make me. I think. I hope. I, I maybe I get this feeling every playoffs, but I I really think it's going to change the way I think about and talk about and write about teams during the next regular season because there's always going to be in the back of my mind like the question of well, how much does this really matter when the games count? You know, like the Bucks would be especially for a team that's like kind of entrenched in that where it's like the Bucks, yeah, big time, a big time, and like I think you could flip it and say like, well, the Warriors aren't looking so great. You know, they're on pace for. 51 wins or 47 wins or something but you know and Draymond looks you know like he's super washed now instead of sort of washed or maybe not <laughs> trying like I just think I think I'm I'm gonna have to check myself and be like but here's what we know when you get in a playoff series x y and z happens and these guys can you know so I, I really do think it's gonna change the way I think about the regular season uh, even more so than than it used to that's I never really thought of it like that, and that's probably a good way to look at it and a great closing thought. Although I guess the last thing is, like, I don't know how to view these playoffs because the circumstances are so unprecedented where it's like if they had played straight through, is it any different for the Bucks or the Clippers? I think you could probably make the argument that maybe for the Clippers it is. But still, I, I think you're right that it's become more clear than ever. And even based on some of the decisions that teams have made, that the playoffs, they, they are their own separate thing, and you're going to make wholesale decisions off that small sample size because it matters so much. Yeah, I agree. Well, I think, you know, Bob Myers, there was that clip from Sloan a year or two ago, maybe, where he just talked about how uh, maybe I'm just, I've been in, he, he incepted me. And now I'm just <laughs> I'm parroting Bob Myers because it, it was so, so astute. But he's just like, yeah, you, you know, we, we just look for guys that perform well in the playoffs because that's what we care about. And if you can perform well in the playoffs, you damn sure are going to be a good regular season player. Um, but the the reverse clearly, I think, is not always going to be true. Grant, thank you so much for letting me keep you 15 minutes longer than I promised that I would keep you. It's always a pleasure to talk hoops with you. Guys, if you're not following Grant on Twitter, please remedy that immediately when he tweets. It's not often, but it's, it is often fire when he is tweeting. At GT underscore Hughes, spelled exactly as it sounds, covers the NBA for Bleacher Report. I will sure enough be pestering him again in the near future. Thank you so much, Grant, and I'll talk to you soon. Yes, sir. Thank you.
Hello, Solomon. Thank you so much for coming on the, the podcast today. Uh, as a fellow Blue Wire podcaster, it's shameful that it took me this long to, to get you on um, a Hardwood Knox episode, but thank you for your time in advance. How are you doing today? Yeah, I'm happy to be here too. And listen, like it's not like this is the first time we're talking or communicating. So don't don't even worry about that. You were on my podcast, I mean, just a couple months ago. So uh, I'm I'm pretty excited. Like I'm this this is this off season for the Rockets is going to be really really interesting in terms of the direction they choose to go from several different perspectives. Yeah, there are so many questions with this team, and I think probably the it's probably best to begin with. Um, the immediate fallout from them losing in five games to the Lakers was Mike D'Antoni just informs them that he is going to leave and explore other opportunities since it's been linked to the Pacers and the Sixers. I mean, he was linked to those teams before he even left the Rockets. And so my first question to you would be, how surprised were you by the news? Or if the news wasn't surprising, like how about the immediacy with which this decision came? Because while there have just been rubblings for a while and we're talking about you know, probably, you know, you're more, you're way more plugged in. So it might've even been before last summer when the like extension talks or non-extension talks started or whatever happened there. There just been like those sort of murmurings that something was going to happen. And so I'm just curious as to what your impression was about, um, obviously the outcome of him leaving, but just the way that it also unfolded. Um, so I was definitely in the minority in that I didn't dismiss the idea that Mike D'Antoni would return next season. And that's from, you know, what I what I thought of what they were going to do and also, like, from what I've heard. Like, I just, I just th- thought the Rockets were going to can really think about bringing him back. And I thought, I remember hearing Daryl Morey say that he would make bringing Mike D'Antoni back a priority. Of course, general managers lie all the time. <laughs> but um, I, I really did believe that they would explore the possibility of bringing him back. And the way the Lakers series played out was just shocking. I mean, I expected it to be a six or seven game series, but L.A. just pummeled Houston. And it's kind of the loss that makes both sides both sides of uh, the negotiation kind of reevaluate things. Mm-hmm. And I just got the vibe in the postgame presser. Like, yeah, this is a dude who's kind of figured out what direction he wants to go in. And... The presser was very reflective about his time at Houston. He was very grateful to the organization. And when I asked him about the, what the team needed to do moving forward to improve, which is like a normal question asked to a coach who right. gets eliminated, like he dodged it. And I kind of thought, based on how this series ended up, that press conference, and how much bad blood there seemed to be between Mike D'Antoni's agent, Warren Legary, and the Rockets, um, that D'Antoni was considering other options. And... Uh, what I didn't expect was for him to make his decision so quickly. Like he had his mind made up by the the afternoon, the next day Uh, that was shocking. Uh, But listen, if he's going to leave either way, this was actually the right way to do it. It was classy for him to put out a statement, thanking the organization Mm -hmm. and the city of Houston. The breakup was clean um, and it gives Houston a head start in their coaching search. They no longer have to worry about whether or not they can convince Dan Tilly to return and they can chase some of these highly sought-after coaches on the market. I think Dan Tony did that on purpose, actually, as a favor to Houston. Uh, and he gets an early start in right. the interview process because some of these teams uh, are interested in, in Dan Tony. And listen, like after his time in Houston, Dan Tony's stock is way up. Uh, there are going to be a lot of teams interested in his services. Uh, remember, this is a guy who's basically shunned out of the league after his stints yep. in L.A. in New York. And he had to become an assistant with the Sixers, which is kind of crazy for a guy with his resume. 
Um, when the Rockets hired him, they were mocked. I suspect the next team that hires him will be rightfully celebrated because this is a guy's a Hall of Fame coach, and I'm happy he's finally gained that respect. Yeah, I yeah. The the one thing I'll say is I thought them leaning into Microball might have just suggested that not only was he more of a priority for them, but maybe they were just closer to to on the same page. And uh, I think also the weirdness comes from like you just don't see the coach team relationship t- typically end in this manner. Like we're always just used to there's either the mutual parting um, spin or for the most part they just end up getting fired. Like you never just see coaches leave in what's effectively free agency. And so that was just kind of disarming a little bit. And I will say it'll be objectively hilarious if he goes from coaching a team that has like a six, five, six, six center to then going to the Sixers um, where, you know, their point guard is like six, five, six, six, right. The smallest, the smallest player in their starting lineup last season was Josh Richardson, who is six, six, I believe. So that would be objectively hysterical. And it would have to be a completely different style. I guess he has some familiarity there from being an assistant, but that, that would just be absolutely funny to me. Looking at it from the Rockets' perspective, though, and I know these are sort of loaded questions, but are there any coaching candidates that are available that still stand out to you that might be interesting fits for this team or names that you've just heard bandied about that we should expect to take most seriously as they begin their search? Yeah, so there's going to be a lot of names linked to the Rockets' search, and I suspect that they're going to do a long interview process. Uh, but I think the the guys that go to the top of the list are going to be guys with some head coaching experience because listen, like Harden's thirty one years old, mm-hmm. they don't they don't have time to wait for a young head coach to learn on the fly. So I think they're going to look for someone with some head coaching experience, and I think I think you really look at that former player pool of coaches because I think those guys can relate to James Harden in a way that D'Antoni was able to successfully do because like. D'Antoni developed a really strong relationship with James Harden. And, like, that's probably the most undercovered part about uh, the Rockets and D'Antoni's relationship. Like, those guys were tight. And, like, there were points in press conferences where James would defend D'Antoni. Like, those guys developed a strong, strong relationship. And I think the next coach is going to be looking to do that. I think I think you look at guys like Ty Lue. Like Ty Lue fits the guy, mm-hmm. fits the profile of a coach the Rockets would like uh, to bring in. Because first of all, he's a former player. He's coached superstars. He knows how to deal with egos. He's a really good offensive coach. And I don't think Ty Lue got enough credit for what he did in Cleveland. Like the Cavs were consistently a top five offense every single year he was there. And that's not just LeBron, right? Like, Ty Lue was a really creative out-of-timeout coach. Like, he was really good with the clipboard. And uh, for some reason, I I, I suspect that's just LeBron, right? Like, when when LeBron's on your team, you just tend to get less credit for everything you do. (laughs) And that's not just coaches. That's players. I mean, look, you look at a guy like Chris Bosh. Uh, you look at, I mean, Eric Spolstra when when he was the head coach for uh, those Heat teams, and it's just it's just a, a LeBron effect that goes from top down the organization. But Ty Lue did, does deserve credit for the, the, their offense. Their offense is really good, um, and I think you look at guys who the Rockets have interviewed before and had strong interest in, like Steven Silas, like associate head coach of the Dallas Mavericks, is a guy I think the Rockets will take another strong look at. He was a finalist for the job in 2016 uh, when they hired Mike. And the, the Rockets were actually considering making Silas the lead assistant to uh, Mike D'Antoni. And they ended up going with Jeff Bizdelic instead. But that's a guy I think the Rockets will take another look at. Chris Finch is a guy the Rockets discovered. I was going to ask about him. 
yeah, he's a guy who, who the Rockets discovered in Germany, uh, and they brought him into through their G League system. Very, very much a Nick Nurse type of hire if they choose if they choose to go in that direction because um, they brought him up, and uh, he was an as- assistant coach on Kevin McHale's staff, uh, so he knows James Harden, and that they have a relationship already established. Uh, he's been an associate head coach for three different teams already, uh, three good teams already, right. and he's regarded as like an offensive savant type. Like he's really, really smart. And a lot of people around the league talk about him as the next head coach that just hasn't got his job yet. Right. Like he just hasn't got his foot in the door, but I I very much suspect that that's going to change in the next couple of years. And Houston makes a lot of sense in that regard. Right. If they, if they weren't going to go in a former player kind of direction, those are the assistants I would take a hard look at. Um, Also, as, uh, as far as the, former player perspective Sam Cassell for the Clippers uh that's a you know I mean he was on the Rockets during their clutch city days and he won two championships with the team they have a relationship with him uh he has put in his due he's been an assistant coach for like 12 years now so it'd it'd make a lot of sense in terms of the relationship these organizations have with each other uh the fact that he's a former player and you know the amount of time he's put in so you know those are the kind of names I would say uh, make sense at the top. Uh, I think the Rockets will also take a strong look at Jeff Van Gundy. Um, okay. And that, that, that to me is the most interesting one, right? Like I think, I think people regard Jeff as someone who may be out of touch with the modern NBA. Right. And I, I just don't think that's true. And I think Jeff is a guy who watches a ton of basketball, even to this day. I mean, when he was a coach, I was, he was on another level, right? Like I'm not sure people remember how neurotic Jeff was. Like this guy <laughs> lived in the film room and watched a ton of basketball and i think uh you look at the rosters he was handed right like he had a a roster with patrick ewing he had a roster with yao ming like these are rosters that can't play modern nba offense so i don't i think it's unfair to regard him as out of touch and if you look at the defenses that jeff coached he never coached a team outside of the top six in defense that's insane wow that's i didn't know that's a that's a ridiculous. Like that's nine seasons, not not one of those teams outside the top six in defense. So uh, from a defensive perspective, the Rockets could certainly use a, a voice like Jeff. I mean, this is a team that's in the middle of the pack defensively the past two years. I think one of the big reasons they haven't been able to break through the conference finals again um, is the fact that their defense isn't strong. So yeah, Jeff is a guy that you just consistently hear attached to this organization every time there's an opening. And I think you look back at. Uh, 2007, when the Rockets decided to part ways with Jeff. I think, listen, Maury was just two weeks into the job. Like, he had to make a decision very quickly. He was promoted on May 1st, 2007, had to fire Jeff May 14th, 2007, right? That's that's a very quick right. turnaround for a, a young general manager. And I think he thinks back at that time, and, I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure if he regrets it, but I, I think he regrets that he never got the time to talk with Jeff and really break thing, break bread with him. I mean, these guys have a close relationship now. Like these guys play tennis together. I think like they're really close and they're both Houston natives. Like Jeff lives in Houston so that, that it would make a lot of sense to go with Jeff. Um, and I, you know, I'm not sure what kind of relationship him and James have. I think that's going to be pretty key. Like if, if Jeff were to get the job, he would have to reach out to James pretty quickly like D'Antoni did. Like D'Antoni, first thing he did when he got the job was call James Harden. And I think that went a long way with him. And I think Jeff would have to do something similar. Yeah, I think the relationship between Harden and D'Antoni was one that was always underplayed. And even like, you know, James Harden doesn't really give uh, at least 
uh, I'll say great group interviews or the TV interviews, but even he gave D'Antoni an endorsement after the game five loss. And so I thought that just went like, it was, I don't want to say it was swept under the rug, but like we only look for when players don't give strong enough endorsements of head coaches. When we ask if they, they want them back. Like if they give the answer of, well, I'm not in charge of contracts and this and that. And Harden seemed pretty definitive in that he wanted D'Antoni back. Uh, um, you mentioned a lot of interesting names there. And so one, I agree with you on the point that I think Jeff Van Gundy is probably more interesting than most people give credit. He's just, he's different when he's sort of outside the ESPN broadcast. If you hear him talking on a podcast or even at times during the broadcast where it's like, he doesn't seem like there are just moments where it comes across that it feels like he hates the modern day NBA. And so it'd be, it would be, I would laugh if he ends up coaching a team that's leaning all the way into microball, assuming they're going to stay that route. But he also, like he knows his stuff and like, you don't, you know, you don't, take over you don't take the reins of a team as a head coach if you're not prepared to like especially now um and especially in a Daryl Morey situation where he's going to outline the style that he wants to play specifically and then just try and completely run counter to it and so I don't think he necessarily be a terrible choice it would be interesting to see them go with a defense first head coach because it's is their offensive ecosystem just so you know default because it has James Harden and that's really all it needs I would say this. So if they do decide to go with a defensive first head coach like Jeff Van Gundy, I would look strongly at who their assistant's going to be. And I would look at Brett Gunnings, who's already on their coaching staff right now. That's a guy who's going to be a lead assistant in the next couple of years. And then a head coach. Like he's on that kind of a track. He's extremely intelligent. He's been with three Rockets head coaches already, including Jeff Van Gundy. Like he was on Jeff Van Gundy's staff and he's still on the staff today. So that gives you a kind of insight in terms of how long he's been with the organization. So I I would say you look at a guy like Brett Gunnings to be the lead assistant there because he designed a lot of the offense under Tansoni. So if Jeff is gonna be the head coach, I would I would look I would look at who that lead assistant's gonna be as someone who kind of leads the offense while Jeff leads the defense. And my last question on on just that, th- uh, this topic would be, do you th- think that they won't hesitate to go in the direction of what would be a first-time head coach, even if it's someone like Chris Finch that they have pre-existing ties to? Yeah, that's going to be interesting. So, like, I I just, you know, th- this is just a gut thing. I think they want it, They want someone with head coaching experience. They're just considering their former public statements and considering uh, hardened age and that they don't want to you know mess around here they don't want to hire someone who's unproven only to find out he's not ready for the job mm-hmm. but if they do go with an assistant they're going to go with someone with a lot of coaching experience like adrian griffin is a guy who's been coaching for you know several decades now right like that that's a assistant coach that might get a. Ch- I mean he was definitely on the rockets interview list in 2016 so that's definitely someone uh steven silas son of paul silas right like mm. it's been in the league for 21 years so if they go with an assistant that that assistant's gonna have a ton of experience um and and i think if they if they don't go if they don't go with that kind of a route i think they're gonna just gonna go with a former player so either it's a former player uh, turned head coach, or they're going to go with someone with a ton of assistant coaching experience, I would say, if you were to narrow it down. I, I The most interesting name to me, and I honestly don't think they'll end up going with him, would be would be Sam Cassell there. And so if they were going to go like with a, a first-time guy, I kind of hope it's um, Sam Cassell. But their head coaching spot's going to be fascinating to watch. And I do agree with your point that it feels like yeah, MDA 
uh, made this decision like for both his and the team's sake. Like now he should have his pick or at least have a chance to interview for teams that before their vacancies fill up and then it gives the Rockets a, a head start on. And, and good for him, man. Like he gets out and he has the most leverage now, right? Like now, like he's not the guy who got fired or he's not the guy who waited around for nope. the Rockets. He's the guy who left early. And now every team in the NBA with the head coach opening is at least taking a look at D'Antoni, which is, uh, you know, good for him. Good for good. Good for him. So the the actual basketball stuff, um, looking at the players, a lot of people are spinning the the second round loss as gloom and doom. And I'm just as as sort of a harbinger that the Rockets need to do something substantial or that they're missing this huge piece. Is that an overreaction given the circumstances where not only were you, you know, Russell Westbrook's dealing with um, the quad injury, but also just looking at the season in general, where it's just this unprecedented environment. You're inside the bubble. Everyone's been away from their their normal way of life for so long. The season is dragged on for approximately forever. And so I'm wondering, you know, is there an amount of leeway that needs to be given? Or do you, when you look at what happened with this team, who, by the way, was also missing Daniel House towards the end of that series as well, or do you look at this team and still say that, you know what, no, something's off with the way that it felt like they, I don't want to belittle a professional player's effort, but it just felt like they rolled over towards the end of that series. You look at this team and say, you know what, there does need to be a substantive change made. And I'm not talking blow it up, trade James Harden, because that's just not going to happen because of how good Harden is. And he doesn't necessarily seem unhappy in Houston right now, but, uh, you know, looking basically at everything else, is is this a sign that they need to make at least a semi-major move this offseason? No, you're not wrong about their effort in that series. I mean, there was, there was a game where the Lakers had 52 rebounds and the Rockets had 26, right? Like, right. that's that, that's just ridiculous. And I Body think, language experts were having a field day in the last oh, yeah, half of that sure. series. <laughs> and they should. I mean, the, the Rockets looked miserable, and uh, it looked like the Lakers figured them out. As soon as they went with AD at center, they completely figured out the Rockets, and they were closing out on their shooter's extremely quick like they, the Rockets were attempting 53s a game in the series before in that series they were attempting like 30 right like mm-hmm. they the Lakers knocked off like 20 attempts uh from from their three-point um, attempts which is ridiculous and uh as far as like a major change yeah I mean it's totally in question like not out of the question that they would try to do that the, the, the problem here is so Westbrook's contract is going to be difficult to move, right? Like if that's the kind that might of might be the understatement of the if, year. <laughs> if, if that's the kind of change you're implying, like listen, they don't have any draft picks, and I don't know what you do with that contract, right? Like I, I think yeah, you're stuck with that. You, like Westbrook is going to be back next season, uh, and as far as James Harden, you just he's 31 years old and he's a top seven player in his prime. You don't you don't trade those players when you have them in your organization because listen, a rebuild is going to be solely dictated at finding another James Harden. So you already have that person in hand. There's yep. no point in trying to you know go get that guy. And the roster is already very good. I mean, they may they may not be good enough to win a championship, but they're already very good. So, you know, deciding to tear it down doesn't make sense, a whole lot of sense to me. I think you look at guys like Eric Gordon and Robert Covington, those are guys with contracts substantive enough to, for major trades if they decide to go in that direction. They don't have draft picks, of course, uh, so I don't know how they've managed to pull that off. I think they'll definitely explore the trade market. I think you look at 
the draft, like the Rockets almost traded for Brandon Clark at, at the draft last year, right? They almost traded Clint Capella um, for the pick that ended up becoming Brandon Clark. And that's a deal that didn't end up happening. So if you look at when the draft comes around, that's gonna, definitely going to be a time where I would watch the Rockets as a team that may try to move up or try to get a pick and, you know, maybe use that pick as fodder for another trade. Uh, that's definitely something you have to be, you have to keep in mind with the team with no draft picks. Um, and, you know, I think the coaching change is going to be a big part of that culture reset that we're talking about, right? Like the next head coach has to emphasize defense in a way that they're not accustomed to, because listen, man, like if, the, if you were to pin down one reason why they haven't broke through the last two years, like to the conference finals, it's their defense. Their defense has not been good enough. Uh, they're they're 15th this year, 17th the year before. Uh, yes, they turned it on to a level we didn't expect in the playoffs, but I don't think you can you can break bad habits like that. I think mm-hmm. those habits are built in in training camp, and, and largely you are what you are by the time the postseason comes around. So, you know, I think a lot of their defense and, and, and listen, I'll admit I was wrong here. Like a lot of their defense is smoke and mirrors. Like I I thought their defense was legit. It was it wasn't, um, and I think. Uh, their next head coach has to emphasize that. Uh, as far as from a roster perspective, they're going to need to use their non-taxpayer mid-level exception. Like Tillman Fertitta uh, is a guy who, uh, for the most part, um, most NBA fans know who he is. And that's because he has not paid the luxury tax yet. And this is a year where listen, it's put up or shut up. You know, like you, you bought the team four years ago or no, three years ago. And you you largely walked into a contendership position. And what contenders do when they're at the the point where the Rockets are is pay the luxury tax. And I think if you look at what the Rockets could do this summer, I think the most significant move they could do to improve their roster is use that non-taxpayer level exception to get a a real player. Like they did in 2017 when they signed P.J. Tucker, right? Mm -hmm. To sign that kind of a player uh, to a multi-year deal. And if, if, if it's a good enough player that, that's flexible enough and malleable enough defensively, you can really fit into your, your scheme your scheme of microball and your idea of switching everything. And I think you look at the kind of players I'm talking about, I'm really thinking of a, a five that can space the floor and switch on defense, which is extremely hard to find. Right. <laughs> right? Uh, and, you know, like you're really talking about a limited pool of players, like maybe Jamichael Green, maybe you know, Sergi Baca, those type of players. Um, and, you know, Jermichael Green's not even a five, right? He, he's just, he's what just would be one in this system. So those are the kind of players I think the Rockets should search for with their non-taxpayer level exception. And um, it's going to be tough. Those players are going to be highly, highly sought after. Um, and I think, I think they have a legit chance at, you know, some good bargain basement deals, but I don't think you're going to find a bargain basement deal that's going to make up for what this roster is lacking. Yeah, there's the free agency market's really tough to read. I mean, like look, you mentioned, Michael Green, who's like a a siren song for me, and he has a player option for five million dollars that I'm not even sure if he should decline. Like I, I'm I'm assuming he'd get more than the mini MLE, but like I don't know, just because this is such a cat poor market right now, and I would think that that means you should be able to maybe, you know, you'll get a bigger bang for your buck if you're using the non-tax pyramid level like the Rockets, but then also that's roughly the money that two-thirds, if not more, of the league is going to be working with as well. And so that makes it really confusing to uh, really confusing to, to iron out targets. Um, but, you know, so you delved into like two of the next topics that I was going to talk to you about. And so if, um, one, 
I guess, before asking you about like a certain player or anything is, do you expect them like per the report, no matter who the head coach is like to really stick with this micro ball model? Oh yeah. And listen, I mean, you sent me your rundown, uh, before the podcast and that last question was going to be, I was going to tackle this, right? Like the biggest misconception about their team is that micro ball is experiment. Like I've still talked to other media people who believe the Rockets are going, are going to stop playing this way. And they, because they got eliminated and Mike D'Antoni walked away. Like, like it, yeah, like like it or not, like they're bringing this brand of basketball back. Like they, they might make some tweaks to the roster to better accommodate it. They might get big, bigger, but bigger does not mean like a seven foot center. Bigger means like a six, eight, six, nine foot forward. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, which would be bigger technically because they're that small. Right. And that's what I would look to. I don't think they're going to get, uh, you know, someone like, I don't know. I, I I I can't even think of a center on the free agent marketplace right now. But I don't think they're gonna they're gonna look for a traditional center. I think they're gonna go for someone who is malleable defensively, fits into this scheme, and you look at the way Russ likes to play. I mean, he needs a space floor more than anybody on this team. Like the Rockets really took off when, uh, or Russ really took off with the Rockets when he had four shooters around him to really operate and do his do his damage. Yeah, so I mean, like, even in, I think, names that will probably, everyone will say that they just need a big, and, like, look, that's not going to be their style, which I think is is fine, because I think this is style is disruptive, and you probably need to deepen the archetype of, of player that you want to, to make this work, but I, I do feel like it can work, and it did, there were some interesting results um, for the Rockets this year, and they made some teams visibly uncomfortable at times. I mean, just even look at the Oklahoma City series, I don't win seven games, but like there were just moments where it was like, well, why is Billy Donovan still have Stephen Adams on the floor? Right yeah, but, but Billy Donovan did not do a good job in that series. And, and listen, you, you're making me get on my high horse right now because I had strong opinions of that series, but that was not a well coached series. I know it went seven, but I'm I'm gonna pull out the process over results card here. Like that that <laughs> that 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 was not a well coached series. Like the, like the way that series went, the Thunder should have won. Like there were there were advantages that they could have exploited and beat the Rockets and. I'm really disappointed that they didn't go with a their best lineups and b um, they, they didn't downsize at all. No. And against the Rockets, you have to. So for something like the Rockets, like let's say it's a, I probably wouldn't give him the full Emily, but like it does a Paul Millsap. Is that like a type of player that they would be interesting in trying to use at like their their four or five spot? Yeah, that's interesting. So Paul Millsap is definitely someone uh, that would kind of fit this kind of a system. But, you know, like, Paul Millsap's not, probably not going to start for the Rockets if he were to, like, so I, that's what what's most interesting to me. So, like, if you look at Paul Millsap at this stage in his career, like, what does he want? What does Paul Millsap want? Because if he wants to start, I can tell you right now, Denver is not starting him next year. They got, they got a nice player in Jeremy Grant that fits much better with what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I think... I think if you're Paul Millsap, you really have to reevaluate some things in terms of what kind of role you have with your current team. What what kind of money do you want moving forward? And can you can you, you know, take a step back in both of those regards? Because that's kind of the be- the ideal path for Paul Millsap moving forward in terms of if he wants to maximize his championship winning window. The a player that this is just it's not even a suggested target because they can't get him. My guess is that'll get more than the MLE. 
ML Eno probably get it from his incumbent team. But Jay Crowder is a player where you look at and it's like, how has he not played for the Rockets already? Yeah, uh, that's interesting because Jay Crowder uh, was a guy who just looked not as good like two years ago, right? Like this is a guy who value completely fell off a cliff uh, until he got to Miami and Miami really revitalized him uh, from, from a player perspective. And I don't know, I, I kind of like where he's at. Like if I were Jay Crowder, I try to get back to Miami and I, I like, yeah, the Rockets uh, could definitely use a player like that, but I don't know if, um, if Jay Crowder would want to leave his current situation. I mean, listen, like the heat might make the finals. Like we're in a, we're in a, we're in uncharted territories right now. Like we have a, a legitimate chance to see a Nuggets Heat Finals. Like that's a you are making the NBA offices shake right now. Adam Silver is yeah. gonna make a call if it looks like we're getting Nuggets Heat. <laughs> yeah, I mean it is it is crazy. Um, like, full props to both of those teams for having the postseason they're having. But um, yeah, I mean if the if the Heat make a legitimate push to the finals, like. I don't know why Jay Crowder would want to leave that situation, you know? I think the the only scenario that I could see, it because I absolutely agree with you, just he's been shooting. Like, he's had good shooting seasons before, but since he's been to Miami, he's been just lights out. Uh, and then, look, even for their part, like, to acquire someone who was one of your primary Giannis defenders at the trade deadline. It's like someone who was so important to the way that you defended Giannis through those, uh, you know, let's say two-plus games in, uh, against Milwaukee is a, a pretty big deal. Um, but I think the pathway would be, let's say Giannis doesn't look like he's going to sign his Supermax. Not saying he's demanding a trade, but if he's still in play for 2021, maybe Miami really wants to conserve cap space, at which point would Jay Crowder and even Drogic would fall into this discussion of, are they willing to come back on bloated one-year deals or someone like Crowder who is on the wrong side of 30, unless you're giving him, you know, 25 to $30 million to come back, or is he going to want maybe if you threw a four-year offer at him to leave, but the kind of curveball you already mentioned this is they might make the finals. And so that just upends, you know, everything like that's sort of a situation where it's like, well, you bring everyone back and you figure it out later if you need to get Giannis. And so he would be certainly out of play the, in my mind, if he becomes in play that, that would absolutely shock me. Um, one of the other names I'd written down and I'm not sure that he's a, like he's a touch and go shooter, but they also did bring in Jeff green, but like a, a Mo Harkless seems like he would fit perfectly on defense with Houston. That's the kind of player I think I would look more at more than a Jay Crowder, right? Like Mo, Mo Harkless definitely fits more uh, what the Rockets want to do, and like he, like his situation is not enviable, right? Like I think the Rockets have a chance to really pry him, and if you really look at what the Rockets would try to spend for a player like that, I think you're looking at not you probably not the, the full tax non tax mid level exception. I don't think Mo Harkless is worth that, but I think you're probably looking at listen if they decide to. Dodge the luxury taxes here. I mean, you're looking at <laughs> oh, some people are be very angry if that happens. Right, you're looking at their taxpayer, the mid-level exception, um, as far as his price tag. Uh, I don't, I don't think. Uh, I, I was just kidding there. I don't think they can. I don't think they can dodge the luxury tax, given they're right up against it right now. Uh, so uh, you know, I think I think they might as well go for it and use all of it. But I don't, I don't think I don't think they would use all of their their ta- their non-taxpayer mid-level exception on Mo Harkless. I don't think that is necessarily the best use of your funds. I think you'd use some of it. I don't think you'd use all of it. No, for sure. Um, and, you know, the he, the Knicks could always overpay him for one year because who the hell knows what they're doing at this point. But, yeah, I have the Rockets within 
Um, and I, I just could be off, but if you're, you know, guaranteeing your salaries and if Austin Rivers picks up his player option, which I'll ask you about in a second, like the, I have them within $2 million of the tax before adding anybody. That's with one minimum cap charge based on their, their roster stuff. So they absolutely, if they're going to use their MLE, unless they're going to end up shedding salary somewhere, uh, they're absolutely going to go in into the tax. And maybe that builds um, for Tita some goodwill because he said it for the past three years that they would pay the tax, but it's kind of yet to do it. Uh, but they, they absolutely, I, I mean, they have to, like, that's the only meaningful tool you have to improve your team, um, which this was the only other way. And you kind of touched on this to do it would be in my mind is, can you find someone to take on the, the Eric Gordon deal, which suddenly just does not like, that looks terrible. Like that might be that extension. Uh, I think it's, you know, the last year's fully non-guaranteed, um, one of the most interesting like non guarantees, by the way, that I remember in a contract in recent memory, but he has three years and fifty four point seven million left. And I know some people might say, well, you could like attach Robert Covington to him, but I look at Covington and Tucker as indispensable to this Houston roster, more so than even a Russell Westbrook would be, just because of how they want to play and what you're going to need them to do on defense. And so, could you see? I know Daryl Morey's ultra aggressive, but and unless I'm reading, I'm unless I'm reading their pick commitments wrong because. It's so bizarre. Their 2022 first rounder should be in play since 2021's a swap, and then they don't owe one until 2024. Could you see them trying to go out there and like offer a Eric Gordon, Daniel House, you know, 2022 first rounder package just to see like what might stick um, for such an offer? I mean, that's the kind of deal you do when you're trying to rebuild, right? Like that's that's the kind of deal you do when you're trying to just shed cap. And I, I don't know if the Rockets are, you know, I mean, they're not going in that direction. I think you're kind of, if you can't move Eric Gordon for some value, you're probably going to have to bring him back. And uh, I agree with you. Robert Covington is pretty indispensable. I think they they made that Clint Capella trade with the long-term implications, right? Uh, and I think if you if you can't find value, like if you can't find legitimate like compensation for Robert Cup, not Robert Cup, for Eric Gordon, that gives you something that can improve their your roster or picks that can help you make trades that help you improve your roster. I don't think they do it. So I think what you're really looking at is the most likely scenario for Houston this summer is they really spend it into the luxury tax this year by using their their mid level exception. Uh, they use every tool available for them on the trade market. Uh, at least they try to. Uh, and they and they bring in a new coach, right? And I think I think that's probably what you're looking at. For. It's it's boring, right? Like it's 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 not it's not exciting. But I think uh, that's probably the most likely scenario for the Rockets. Well, that was I was actually I wasn't even talking about trying to dump his money, but it was like, is that you know would a, oh to see see what kind of value you can get? Like, let's look at a rebuilding team like Chicago, where if they have a chance to get a first round pick in 2022, and they can talk themselves into saying, well if the protections aren't too heavy, like who technically knows where the Rockets will be at that point. And so if you can turn a Gordon and there would need to be filler there, I don't, I don't think Gordon and house alone work. There might need to be another small contract, but you could guarantee Chris Clemens. And what if you can get an auto Porter for that package? Like, is that, I meant, is that like a type of deal that they would consider? I know people have mentioned there's framework where um, you could get Al Horford, but I don't think he's, he has some switch on defense still, but I don't really think that he kind of, in the truest the most literal sense of the term he doesn't fit micro ball but even like looking at if you want to forget about his size and look at his play style I just really don't think that he fits that mode and so I'm wondering if like a you know then get an Otto Porter Jr. in exchange for you know they're dangling that 22 first then they're just using Eric Gordon's money as an anchor if that's the type of framework that they they might consider at this juncture 
Yeah, that's interesting. Otto Porter, huh? Um, so, I mean, I, I guess the question you ask is like, who fits better for this specific Rockets team, right? The idealized version of Eric Gordon or the idealized version of Otto Porter, right? Because both of those guys haven't played up to their idealized versions right. in the past couple of years, right? Um, and I don't know. Honestly, the, the, those guys are both at their peaks, pretty good players and fit. They both fit into this this framework. I think I think if you could find a way to, to pry Otto Porter, I think, yeah, that's definitely a deal that you'd consider, right? Um I don't see. See, what, where would you pay, where would you play him though? Okay, so like, I I, I suspect that Eric Gordon was going to start next year, right? Uh, if if Eric if you if you get Otto Porter, right, you're bringing you're bringing in James Harden, Russ, PJ Tucker. Uh, those are those three are starting for sure, right? And I suspect Robert Covington's going to start there. So you think you think you think Otto Porter just becomes a fifth starter in that situation? That would be my guess in large part because, I mean, in theory, you're looking at that trade would technically cost you like two would-be starters also in Eric Gordon and Daniel House, like two candidates at least. And so I think Rocco can at least, Porter's probably better going up against the just, I'm not saying the better defender overall, but he's probably best suited to go up against the the bigger wings maybe who aren't as quick and you know defend more fours. And then you can trust Rocco to kind of go against the, the smaller players because he's like, I mean, in Houston, he's, he basically gives you five position range on defense, but I think he's always given you kind of four position range on defense. So I think that actually would make it rather easy to fit an auto Porter alongside both he and PJ Tucker, but I could be wrong there. Yeah, it, it's, it's definitely some, like he, he makes a lot of sense, right? Uh, I guess the question you have to ask yourself if the, if you're the Rockets in that situation is like, do you want to, do you want to give up both Eric Gordon and Daniel house? Like, cause those are two players that you know fit into your, into your, your system next year. Uh, as, and you're trading for one and that, that one player can be more effective than both of those two players, but how much more effective that like, can you make up for what you're losing in Daniel house on the open market? I'm not sure, you know, like maybe, maybe you can, and then you, maybe you can use that, um, that, that mid-level exception to, to make up for what you're losing in that in that case and you know perhaps even get better um yeah that that's it i i think that's the kind of trade the rockets do at the end of their offseason as opposed to the beginning of their offseason if that makes sense if, if they can figure out what their roster looks like and then they make that trade i think it makes more sense in that situation yeah, it would almost have to be too because i don't even know i am not like i i can't like, looking at eric gordon's extension i'm just not sold on it so i don't know how much it costs to basically eat you know the final two years because, you know, he's cheaper than Otto Porter substantially this year. And I think that's how you talk yourself into giving up the first and house is because then you, you know, this isn't about shedding money, but Otto Porter Jr. also comes off the books next year. And so if you need to move on, like it gives you a little bit more flexibility there, but that it feels like that's the type of swing that this team would make. I'm not even saying it's exact. It's that exact one, but I feel like Maury is all about optimizing the window around James Harden. And so he might take, you know, people look at Eric Gordon and say, well, you, you can't move him. But like, I feel like Daryl Morey could maybe find a way to take that. I'll call it a medium sized swing because you're not going to turn him into this um, a- immense value in return. But that does feel like the type of, at least the nature of it. So I'm, I'm not even trying to pat myself on the back here, but that seems like the, like the, the type of deal that, that the Rockets would consider at some point over the off season, once they figure out, well, how much does it kind of cost for another team to, um, to take on the final two years of, of Eric Gordon's deal. 
Yeah, and it, it makes sense. That is definitely the type of deals you have to explore if you're Houston. And, and, and what you which what, what you mentioned about Otto Porter's contract coming off the books is interesting to me because for the Rockets, PJ Tucker's contract comes off the books next year, right? So you're looking at a situation if you make that trade where you get Otto Porter and PJ Tucker off your books next year. Uh, it's not I haven't even done the 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 math yet. Like you're bringing this trade to me uh, completely out of the blue. Sorry, so, it, like it no. came to me after I had. Uh... I DM'd you and I was like, that's like, cause I've been trying to find like Eric Gordon trades, like in theory and not many have stood out. No, you, you that is de- like, I was definitely looking at the Al Horford type of trades, like for Houston, but this one makes a lot more sense logically for what they want to do next year. So I'm, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to sleep on this. I'm going to have to think about this, uh, do some math, uh, after, after this podcast is over. But yeah, that is interesting. I will say if, in, in that scenario, and they could obviously add players on multi-year deals, but if you were dealing House and Gordon and getting back Porter, you only have three guaranteed players on the books for the 2021-22 season, and that's Russell Westbrook, James Harden, and Robert Covington. And so you have no cap space because those three players are costing you over $100 million. Uh, but like that's still plenty of flexibility under whatever the tax ends up being, and maybe you could do other stuff. So food for thought. I did want to ask you about the like current players who they, you know, they have to kind of make calls on their future. I'll say, so you have Austin rivers has a player option. I don't know whether you have a feel if you think he's going to exercise that because it's $2.4 million. Ben Macklemore, 2.3 non-guaranteed salary. Um, and then the, one of the players who there's Jeff green, who's a free agent. They don't have his bird rights. And then David Nwaba, who they kind of picked up late in the season, knowing he wasn't going to play. They got that club option. I know he's coming back from an Achilles injury, but he's always just been like, a player I like that, the I yeah. like the deal they signed him to. That was smart because look, he's someone who's defended positions one through four for a few years now, and like specifically during his time in Cleveland, like he was hitting his catch and shoot threes, and so like those are the looks that Houston would ask him to take. They're not going to have him do anything else on offense, basically. And so if you can count on his positional range still, um, because he is he's on the the shorter side. I think he's six four, but he's defended fours like consistently, like not spot duty but consistently. And so that gives you just a ton of optionality defensively. So unless his um, Achilles recovery is going terribly, my, my guess would be for this specific situation, I would think that they pick up his, his team option. Oh yeah, for sure. They, they signed that contract with the idea of picking up his team option 100%. And, you know, like he gives you, you're right. He gives you so many, so much optionality uh, defensively and, I, I think it was smart of Houston to sign this deal because first of all, you don't need him this year. So I mean and you, you, you can afford to sign him for whatever two year deal you want. And mm-hmm. I think I think what he gives you defensively is kind of similar to like what Luke and Bamute gave you. Like this is the that Luke and Bamute type of signing that they signed uh what was it in two thousand three or four years ago now, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that's so good that year, yep. It's it's a very similar kind of deal because it's a bargain basement deal. Uh, it doesn't cost you much, and and you know he's a guy who's proven himself at his peak ability to be a really good defender. Um, so let's, let's talk about those three players you mentioned. I think from a money perspective and a basketball perspective, they can only afford to bring like two of those player, three players back next season. Um, let's start with the money. There's a strong possibility that Austin Rivers opts out of his player option to seek a bigger, more, bigger role and more money elsewhere. Uh, he turned down more money to return to the team last summer. But he might not do that again. I think he negotiated his contract last summer with that int- intentionality. Uh, as far as Jeff Green's concerned, 
Uh, look, there is a possibility that a dumb, a dumb team saw Jeff Green perform in the playoffs and is willing to overpay him. Uh, we know that happens every year. It could very well happen with Green. I know the Rockets would like to bring him back, but if they can't sign him back to a bargain contract, I don't think they resign him at all. Um, and from a basketball perspective, they need to rethink their roster uh, from a stronger defensive identity because I think in that case, they can afford to bring two of these guys back like Ben McLemore is a nice player to have, but he couldn't find playing time in the playoffs. Jeff right. Green is, is fine defensively in moments, but you don't want to depend on him. And as far as Austin Rivers is concerned, the way that Houston has necessitated bigger players, I don't know if he really fits into what they want to do moving forward. I think he fit in that Chris Paul, Clint Capella, James Harden framework. I don't think he fits in the Russell Westbrook, uh, James Harden, Robert Cumden framework of this team, right? Like those are two different teams. I think, I think people need to shift the way they think of those teams. Uh, as soon as they made that Clint Capella trade, they were way past that old era of basketball. They were not, they no longer ran pick and rolls. They no longer, um, they no longer needed heavy guard play because they had enough guard play. And I think, if you look at what what the Rockets want in their roster next season, I think they would like more size than what Austin Rivers is giving them. Um, he was also someone who struggled in Houston's packed guard rotation, so I think they keep, I think I think they keep two of those guys. I don't know, I don't know which two at the moment, but that's my theory. Uh, I guess if you move Eric Gordon, Austin Rivers becomes more of just like a no brainer fit there. But there's still the he would be the one that I would be worried about cost the most. I mean, look, they could just keep like guarantee Ben McLemore's two point three million dollar salary, and so maybe that's just the move they make because that's still relatively cheap and like not immovable if you need to go that route if you're hard up for roster spots obviously then that's something to consider but rivers with the player option he did shoot over 36 percent on pull-up threes this year like i could see a i don't see him getting like a huge money deal but if you have to tap into your mid-level exception to keep him i don't necessarily know if that's going to interest the rockets at all and there could be a team like philly i think could really just use him because he's someone who's okay doing anything um off the dribble in the half yeah. court it might be a mutual uh, parting because, it, yeah, it, you're 100% right. More teams can use Austin Rivers than the Rockets can use him, right? Especially if they bring Eric Gordon back because then, then you're talking about bringing back that packed guard rotation where Austin Rivers just gets lost in the weeds a little yep. bit. And uh, I, I think Ben McLemore is definitely the kind of player uh, for that for that option. I mean, it's, it's so dirt cheap that it, it almost doesn't matter if you can't, you can't play him in certain matchups. Like, it's just, why not? Like it's just a roster spot at that point, and it's not like you know you're gonna you're finding like eight players this offseason that right. you can't you can't fit in back Ben McLemore into your framework. So I think it makes sense to bring him back. And Jeff Green, I think if teams don't overpay him, uh, I think I think he's a fine player to bring back for a cheap deal. He's not like he's. I'd probably just say veterans minimum. Like I'm not even I'm not even using like. Yeah, biannual, like if they can finagle it up, like that's too much money for me. Um, so since we already talked about uh, what was the most undercovered aspect of this team, is there anything that I left out you want to talk about? We really, it's funny we didn't touch on like Harden Westbrook that much because I just feel like it should just be known that they'll still be there. Um, I guess no, my you're one, right. I guess yeah. my one question would be that without the the Russell Westbrook trade has been relitigated to no end. Do you think Houston still gets to this? Uh, micro ball model if they never make that deal? Like, or do they get to the point where they feel like moving Clint Capella is a necessity and then go down this route? And have you given any thought to would they have looked a lot better if Chris Paul is the point guard in this situation instead of Russell Westbrook? Yeah, what a great question. Uh, so 
I don't know if they still choose to go this row. I suspect that they bring Clint Capella back, right? Like, I, I think they made this trade with Russell Westbrook in mind. In fact, that was their main talking points after they made the trade, right? They talked about having a space floor around Westbrook. And I think I think if they had Chris Paul, they'd probably play more more traditional and have Clint Capella back. And they're they're better at playing more traditional if they if they, if they have Chris Paul, right? I mm-hmm. think Westbrook forces them to think out of the box. Uh, Westbrook forces most teams to think out of the box. He's just such a weird and different player. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely one of those things where I think if you're a Rockets fan, you need to stop relitigating that trade because it's unhealthy. Like it's it happened. <laughs> it's it's over. Like you, Westbrook's on your team. He's gonna be there for the next three years. I don't see any point. Like there, there's nothing material that can come out of just thinking about what what could be with with Chris Paul. Like that's done. Yeah. Like listen. Like the the time to talk about that trade was when it happened. Now, like like what are you gonna do? Like. <laughs> Like Chris right. Paul, yeah, like he's he's a better player for sure, one hundred percent. I I thought that at the time they made the trade, and I and I still think that now. That was uh, the pro- that's the problem with the relitigations is, is like this wasn't something that was up in the air at the moment. I think at the time the consensus was that this was not predominantly a basketball driven move. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think if you look at the way their playoffs ended in twenty nineteen, uh, there was definitely something that happened. And, you know, nobody's been able to properly ascertain what exactly happened uh, between Chris Paul and James Harden. But they were cool up until game six of that Warrior series. And then during game six and then afterwards in the locker room, there's something happened, some sort of verbal altercation between the two players. And then they came out in separate press conferences. Right. So you, you can definitely. Uh, make the logical conclusion that that was not a basketball decision. That was definitely something that they made uh, knowing that these two players can be together for the next season. So I think, I think they call that the five stages of teaming with Chris Paul and uh, James Harden <laughs> just went through it a little bit more quickly than uh, everybody else where it feels like he grades on his own teammates. And someone pointed this out that maybe this was the best way for him to leave Oklahoma city after one year, because we're just all assuming he gets traded is that there's still the good vibes and like the young players still like him because the next couple stages just include like them getting angry at him because he's too grading. <laughs> yeah. So I have a question. So where does Chris Paul go from here? Right? Like, cause I think the logical conclusion is he goes to a contender like, like the bucks. Right. But I don't know if the Bucks necessarily want to do that, right? Like, so I, I think they're, you know, like as bad as they looked in the playoffs in the second round, right? Like, I think they're still better off with Chris Middleton moving forward for the long term. But you, you still look at what the, what they're lacking in their guard rotation. Like, they really miss Malcolm Brogdon, right? Like the mm-hmm. Bucks, like they completely missed the ship with with right. Brogdon Bledsoe uh, calculation, but. Uh, again, very much. Uh, you can't relitigate this if you're if you're a Bucks fan. You keep, this happened. It's over. Like you, you don't have Malcolm Brogdon anymore. Eric Bledsoe's on your basketball team. So what do you do moving forward? You try and 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 go for a player like Chris Paul because Chris Paul, I still think, has at least one or two more good years left in him, and his contract expires after twenty twenty two or twenty twenty one. When when does it, when does his contract expire? Twenty twenty two. Chris Paul's. Yeah, yes. he has a player option for the 21-22 season, so it expires in 22. He's not going to turn down, I think it's like, what is it, $48 million? It's it's something that's absolutely nuts. It is four, oh, $44.2 million. He's not turning that money down. 
So it's not crazy to have him for a two-year rental, right? If you're not giving up too much, like Chris Paul is better for your team uh, for the next two years. And you can, you, you know, you can shed his contract after after those two years, and you, and then you can figure out what you want to do from there. But you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. Like, do you think the Bucks explore that kind of a rental, or do you think do you think there's another team out there that would really suit Chris Paul? There, I think there are actually plenty of teams that could probably talk themselves into it. I don't know if the Bucks will because they're kind of in the like Tillman Fertitta situation where it's like they said they've paid the tax, but like let's let's fucking see it first. And there was a report from the Athletic that they're not interested in Paul. And I get the price point. What I think people are underselling here for the Bucks is that, I, and I would even have cause for pause with this. Everyone thinks it's so easy just to match the salaries for Chris Paul. Milwaukee, it's tough. Milwaukee yeah. isn't going to want to give up Bledsoe, Lopez, and George Hill in that deal. That's three major rotation players for one. I don't care if Chris Paul's in his prime. That's a lot to give up. And so the permutations that work best for them is built around Eric Bledsoe and then like the poo-poo platter of salary filler where you have Ursan Eliasova, Robin Lopez, DJ Wilson. You're probably willing and have to give up Dante DiVincenzo in that scenario. And the key there to me would be well, why would the Thunder want that trade? It's can you find a third party to take on Eric Bledsoe? Like maybe Atlanta would take him into their cap space or something um, because then you're offering a ton more immediate savings to Oklahoma City, and that's the route you go. If they can't do something like that, like if that's going to cost you, um, I'm not saying Chris Paul isn't worth it in a vacuum, but like Brooke Lopez was all defense this year. George Hill led the NBA essentially in, in three-point shooting percentage. Like those are two huge pieces to leave. And they're also two of the Bucks' most important shooters. Um, Lopez didn't shoot it too well for most of the regular season, but his volume matters. And so to remove them from the rotation, I know center value is kind of easier to approximate um, on the, the free agent market, but I, I think that you need to go for the Bucks. They would need to be able to get Chris Paul in that type of scenario where they're only giving up Bledsoe as opposed to Lopez, Hill, and Bledsoe. And look, I don't know if teams, it's the money that's going to concern teams the most. Uh, Chris Paul is two years and $85.6 million left on his deal. We're dealing in a, a you know, a, a mid pandemic world. I was about to say post pandemic world, but like where we haven't had gate revenue for these teams in forever, there probably won't be gate revenue for most, if not all of next season, who's willing to, to bite that bullet? Because I think Chris Paul is worth it. And like, you know, you look at other teams, um, Miami probably doesn't come into play after this season, unless again, they know that Giannis is, is outside the realm of possibility. And even then they might just pivot to an, an Oladipo, um, type of situation. I think, look, people have mentioned the, the Clippers might be a, a worthy if they're willing to go. I think it's Williams, Beverly, Zubats, and Magruder um, will get you Chris Paul back. That's a team that I think should actually consider something like that. Um, we know what that... What picks do they have to, to trade for Paul? I'm sorry, what was that? What picks do they have to trade for Paul? Uh, I don't. You would have probably have to... They don't have picks until 2028. And so you have... So. You, you might have to look at Landry Shamit, or you're just hoping that, you know, Oklahoma City really likes, like, Zubats or Beverly. You're probably getting a third team involved in, in that scenario. Uh, I think the two teams that arguably stand out the most, though, would be Philly and then Phoenix. With Philly, it's can you sweeten up a package that's going to include, I would guess, Al Horford, but it could be Tobias Harris. I'd, I'd think that it's easier to move Horford just because of the length of his deal. But, you know, can you sweeten that up enough, and is it even worth it? For Chris Paul, I think Phoenix provides the easiest fit. I don't know if they'll go that route, but you know, Ricky Rubio and Kelly Oubre, and then I would give up number ten for Chris Paul. Like I, I would absolutely do that if I were them. Maybe you can get away with um, just including Ty Jerome in there, even if you had to do Ty Jerome and number ten. That's something that I would consider because Chris Paul is that good, like you said. And even if it's just a season of a top fifteen player, that is ridiculously hard to come by. And so I do think there should be plenty of teams. 
willing to trade for him, and the Bucks should be atop that list. I just I think the money is what's going to give teams pause, and it's you know I'll spend billionaires' money all day. I don't care. That just wouldn't give me reticence. His price point, it just absolutely wouldn't. Yeah, I guess the question you have to ask yourself if you're Milwaukee is how quickly can you replace Brooke Lopez's value, right? I, th- I think, you know, you're already replacing George Hill's value in that you're getting Chris Paul, right? You're getting someone who, George Hill and Bledsoe, I think Chris Paul is more valuable than both those two players combined. The, mm-hmm. the tricky part is how do you replace uh, Brooke Lopez's value? And, you know, another question you have to ask yourself if you're Milwaukee is like how, how much how much value does does Brook Lopez provide you in a postseason setting as compared to a regular season setting, right? Because I think you're starting to find this out in the playoffs. Like, switchier teams seem to fare better in the playoffs. And Miami's, you know, the, an A1 example of this, right? Like, and, you know, drop, it's not to say drop back defenses can't succeed. I mean, look at the Lakers, right? Like, it's not to say those, t- those type of defenses aren't effective. But I think... Brooke Lopez isn't as malleable as as like the kind of center you would like to have in the postseason. So I don't know. Like that that's a tricky question if you're Milwaukee. The Sixers are definitely interesting. I think they really miss Jimmy Butler. Uh I mean watching <laughs> it in the playoffs. Like they need someone who just takes control of the offense, especially in fourth quarter situations. Um yeah, it, that that's that 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 makes a lot of sense. If if the the, the question is like how much are you willing to give up? Obviously, uh, who are you willing to give up? Phoenix is definitely interesting too because you know pairing Chris Paul next to Devin Booker it just makes a ton of basketball sense. Even if that's a temporary fit, like that gets you, you know, probably to the playoffs next right. year, right? And, for Phoenix. And my thinking here was like, look, the the eight no bubble vibes. Like maybe those are real, but you're like in this weird position where you're not a guaranteed playoff team, and like any sort of substantial move that eats into your younger core like that could end up setting you back and so if Chris Paul is someone that you can get where you don't we know Booker's not going to be involved but like if you're making a big swing theoretically you need to make an Aiton um a Mikhail Bridges even a Cameron Johnson available and if you're able to get Chris Paul without including those three players I think that's what makes that so appealing to me is that you're getting that impact without really mortgaging your future because how important is Ricky Rubio and Kelly Oubre Jr. to your future. You can argue the number 10 pick is, you know, that's something to give up. But, like, this year's draft class, you're probably not going to get more than a complimentary player there anyway. And so I think at this point it's it's fair to consolidate, but you need to do it within reason because you don't know if you're that surefire playoff team. I think Chris Paul gets you there. And, again, aside from the actual financial cost, I just don't think there's this huge um, opportunity cost when you're looking at, like, the the asset equity you'd give up in a hypothetical Chris Paul trade. Now, if you're just in love with Ricky Rubio and Kelly Oubre Jr., it's different, but Chris Paul is way better than Ricky Rubio, and I think that Oubre has proved... Oubre's pretty good. He's good, but he's proved, he proved replaceable to me because you put Cameron Johnson in that starting lineup and you hummed, and then Dario Saric off the bench as more of a shot creator just makes too much sense, and so that kind of leaves... I won't say Oubre and Lurch. He could still help this team, but I don't think he's you know irreplaceable by, by any means. And look, you have to worry about paying him in 2021 anyway when he's going to be a free agent. No, you're right. And, you know, this this draft is pretty weak, too. So that 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 10 pick is not going to be pretty valuable for you. And like I, I think Chris Paul's value for the next two years, as far as growing with that young core, I mean, I think I that's immensely valuable, especially for a player like Devin Book for like Devin Booker, who hasn't tasted the playoffs yet. Having a player like Chris Paul by your side, who's not only tasted it, thrived in that kind of a situation is really, really healthy for you moving forward. Even if you only have him for two years, I think it's the kind of buy that makes a lot of sense. It's kind of like, um, in a different way, 
it's kind of like the Jazz uh, buying in on Joe Johnson for right. Uh, right? Like it, it, it's obviously two different situations, but it's like it's very much like that. Like having that kind of a closer in your in your midst as you try to make your first playoff appearance makes a lot of sense. Yeah, look, hey, you, look, you mentioned the Jazz. I think the the Mike Conley plus sweeteners for Chris Paul trade is staring him staring him right in the face too. Um, one, it's hysterical how all my even team oriented podcasts that this is at least tangentially related to Chris Paul because it's it's the Rockets, but everything just comes back to a Chris Paul trade at this point. I absolutely love it. But um, Salman, I I really thank you for giving me so much of your of your time. This was a, a great discussion. The Rockets are clearly one of the more fascinating teams to watch. Um, during the offseason and just given that Daryl Morey's in charge even though they seem so inflexible on their books you you almost have to prepare yourself for just anything happening like no they're not going to acquire another star but it just feels like look we saw Chris Paul flip for Russell Westbrook last year like anything is possible with this team so I look forward to seeing what they do over the offseason and um, if you guys are not following Salman on Twitter please remedy that immediately he can be found at Salman Ali MBA that's at S-A-L-M-A-N-A-L-I NBA um, does great work. Uh, fantastic podcaster um, does great coverage for the Rockets over at ESPN 97.5 and broken record style. Thanks again so much for, for coming on Salman. I really enjoyed this talk. For sure. I did too, man. For the ones standing guard for the Eagle eyed for the Knights in shining armor and for all those who support them. We are Granger your experienced safety partner, offering supplies and solutions for every industry, committed to helping keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com slash safety, or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.